This is not the media. This is hell. Hi, listener. Hi, it's producer Alex. Your host, Chuck, is a late scratch this week due to an unspecified, uh, probably niece-induced, Thanksgiving-related communicable illness. So I'm just going to play my favorite interviews of 2018. No Chucks, no Masters, just the interviews I've thought the most about this year, the ones that I've recommended the most to people, and the ones I'm looking forward to listening to again. Okay, so this week, Royce Granton learns to live on a dying planet. Radha D'Souza explains why we want things and not rights to things. Tithi Bhattacharya explains why teacher strikes are different and successful. Asad Haider looks beyond identity politics and towards radical collective action. C. Riley Snorton explores black and trans identities in an age of exclusion, and Max Haven surveys the deep links between art and money under capitalism. Damn, 2018 was a pretty good year. I mean, for <laughs> for the show, not for, like, the world. Uh, okay, here are my faves. Let's start with Royce Granton. This civilization needs to die. It's made life meaningless and is actively killing our planet with climate change. It's time we move on to another better civilization while humanity still has a chance to survive. Here to talk about our meaningless civilization that's destroying Earth and to help us figure out where we can go from here. Roy Scranton is author of We're Doomed, Now What? Essays on War and Climate Change. Roy was on This Is Hell in 2015 to talk about another happy book he wrote, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, Reflections on the End of a Civilization. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Roy. Thanks for having me on again, Chuck. It's great to be on the show. That conversation that we had back in December of 2015, we got so many comments about it. We got so many people saying that it really made them very depressed, but also gave <laughs> also gave them some form of hope. And I think that that is what is going to happen if people read your new book as well. You can follow Roy on Twitter, at Roy Scranton, and you can find out more about Roy at RoyScranton.com. You write, the time we've been thrown into is one of alarming and bewildering change. The breakup of the post-1945 global order, a multi-species mass extinction, and the beginning of the end of civilization as we know it, not one of us is innocent, not one of us is safe. In the choices that you see us making, uh, how much do you see them being guided by this bewilderment? Uh, are, Are choices and decisions confused and uncertain because we live in confused and uncertain times? I think that's probably uh, a pretty good take on it. Uh, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole range of things that sort of limit our decision making and limit our, our worldview, even just simple stuff like, you know, a basic human tendency to look to uh, short term solutions to problems, right? Uh, and then, and then you add things like uh, a cultural tendency to focus on the short term, right? And this sort of the capitalist culture we live in, uh, you know, thinking generations and generations down the line is really not, um, it's not rewarded. And so there's a bunch of stuff that's really sort of closed in our view and made it really hard for us to think uh, outside of this moment, which is incredibly confusing and uh and difficult and grim and weird. Uh, I mean, you follow the news. I mean, you follow the news every day, and it's it's impossible to know what to make of it. Um, to the point where people are just right self-selecting out 
the narratives that they want to believe in and then following those uh, and sort of ignoring contrary data. So there's a lot there's a lot going on right now that makes it really hard for even reasonable, intelligent, thoughtful people to reflect with any kind of depth on our on our predicament. So um, that's really interesting. So if you are somebody who is on the right and does not understand anybody who would listen to or watch or believe anything that they see on MSNBC, or somebody, conversely, who is a huge fan of MSNBC, they always have it on, who cannot understand how anybody could ever watch Fox News or believe anything that it says, how much do you think that that kind of disconnect that we're seeing right now is driven by climate change and a desire for us to make some understanding that we approve of of the world that we live in today? Well, that's a a really interesting, uh, complicated question. Uh, I I, I wouldn't say that um, the kind of political tribalism at work in the United States now is directly necessarily driven by climate change. I think climate change is one of the major factors sort of behind a general sense of anxiety and unease. Um, but I think there's a lot, uh, a lot more going on as well, um, including, uh, including the, the kinds of um, globalization and sort of cultural homogenization that has been happening over the last 20 years that have made people anxious to uh, know who they are, right, and to, to be able to say who they are, right? I think that's one of the things going on now behind this kind of political tribalism is is a desire to be able to identify oneself as belonging to a certain group, right? And and doing that by refusing to to accept some other some other group. And it's happening, you know, uh it it's happening all over uh and all over the political spectrum. Um and you know, like I said, I think Climate change is part of the background for that kind of tribalism as uh, a, as a, a a factor of of general anxiety and and fear. Um, but I would hesitate to say like it's directly connected to that that kind of that exact political divide. Although, you know, then there's another thing to say on that, which is a point you know Naomi. Klein made uh, in uh, in her book "This Changes Everything," which is that people who uh, are invested in in capitalism and the capitalist status quo are going to have a, a committed uh, investment in denying the truth, uh, denying the the scope and scale of anthropogenic global climate change, because if you accept that. It's tr- if you accept the science and if you accept the consequences of what's happening with climate change, then you cannot deny that we need to completely change this capitalist system. Like it's just it's because it's industrialized fossil fuel capitalism that's that's caused it. So uh, from that sense, you know, in that in that way, climate change may in fact be sort of directly driving the tribalism insofar as it is uh, it's sort of forcing um, it's sort of forcing the the capitalist party to double down on on their ideology 
um, which then provokes the similar response on the on the other side. So you get you get Trump versus Bernie Sanders, right? In 2016, I mean, as the two as the two lively agents in a in the election. Um, so yeah, I mean, and there's more that could be said, but that's sort of that's sort of an idea, I think, of of how climate change is working in the the current political spectrum. I, th- I think there's a lot of people on the liberal side or, in, or farther on the left who be- who are they they don't understand. They're stymied by the idea that uh, of climate change denialism that they see on the right. But you write. Right-wing denialists insist that climate change isn't happening or that it's not caused by humans or that the real problem is terrorism or refugees, while left-wing denialists insist that the problems are fixable under our control, merely a matter of political will. Are left-wing denialists, as you call them, actually in denial, or are they accepting the idea that the world is being drastically changed by climate change, and not only should we do something, but we can do something about it? Or, Or is that kind of addressing of climate change still a type of denialism to think that don't worry i know there's going to be a technology not not to worry we should be worrying but i'm certain a new technology will come along to fix this problem yeah to to me that that's definitely um a kind of a form of denialism uh and let me be specific about about how that's the case uh it's it's precisely in the the sort of the insistence uh, the hope, um, the faith that it's fixable, that, um, that we can solve it with the proper, uh, technological or market-based solution, right? You just get the right carbon tax and some carbon scrubbers and it's all going to be fine. We just need to organize. We just need the political will. We just need the, the right charismatic leader to make it happen. Or we just need the right legislation. Um, and that's a form of denial. And what it's denying uh, is, number one, that significant and catastrophic levels of warming are already baked into the system because of the amount of carbon dioxide that we've already released into the atmosphere. The Arctic is in meltdown right now, um, and there's no stopping that. Uh, we can, we could, you know, with a global revolution in socioeconomic structures, we could slow it down and even even um, maybe mitigate, but there's no stopping um, intense and destructive levels of warming at this point. So presuming that we can, that if we just have the right hope or the right legislation that we can, we can fix it is already a form of denial. But then the second, the second way that this kind of, uh, uh, liberal or, and sometimes progressive um, um, uh, in, in incrementalism, right, is is a form of denial. Is in its faith that the system as it now operates is capable of addressing this global problem, right? Um, that the that the that American democracy, such as it is, and American capitalism, and the, the global organizations um, that were built after World War II to help uh, sustain American hegemony uh, and global, global capitalism, uh, that, that, those, that those organizations are capable of 
completely gut renovating themselves, right? Uh, that just seems fantastic to me because those organizations are all built around uh, an energy economy that is uh, driven by oil. And we're, we can't talk realistically about uh, solutions or even mitigation or even, you know, slowing down this death train until we are able to talk about complete transformation of the global energy systems off fossil fuels. It is the view then that technology or political will can somehow fix or at least address the worst aspects of climate change? Do you think is do you think that's a uniquely American view? And if so, what does that reveal to you about culture and society in the United States? Hmm. I don't think it's a uniquely American view. But I do think uh, that a lot of the Americans who, I mean, it's a, it's a view shared by, you know, uh, technocrats working at the UN and all, all kinds of nations. Um, you know, it's a view shared by um, other nations who, who are, people working in other nations who are um, trying to come up with uh, sustainable, renewable energy sources. Um, I mean, there's politics there as well, um, you know, given that the U.S. Uh, is sort of the primary agent of the petroleum energy economy, right? Going, getting off petroleum and on, say, solar, right? That's a political move as well as uh, um, an environmental one. Um, so there's that stuff. But... Uh, the Americans that I talk to who hold these beliefs, beliefs, the thing that seems distinctive about that that sector of the conversation is its sort of um, uh, its fervency, right? Like it's it's almost it's puritanical, like uh, it's it's religious insistence that we have to have hope and that we have to have faith in this and that. Like if you if you dare question if you dare question the the belief that we can fix this, then you're you're an enemy. Like you're undermining the whole cause. Um, and that kind of logic, I mean, that kind of um, political attitude, that kind of political comportment, right? Doesn't seem peculiarly American or or uniquely American, but it does seem that some, to be something that if you look historically, um, it's something Americans do and have done <laughs> and do again and again and again. Um, you know, we get really, we get really uh, worked up about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you write that as the gap between the future we're entering and the future we once imagined grows even ever wider. Nihilism takes root in the shadow of our fear. If all is already lost, nothing matters anyway. How do you see our actions reflecting any overall sentiment that life is now in this age of climate change meaningless? I think there's a lot of um, desire for meaning. I think there's a lot of people, and this goes back to that kind of tribalism that I was talking about again, right? Like, your life can make sense to you if you... Like if you define it as being against somebody else, whether you're against Trump or you're 
you, you spend all your time owning the libs, right? Like you can, you can make your life make sense in that kind of way. But then also you look at, um, I mean, if you if you sort of take a step back and look at the bigger picture of, of our culture, um, and consider, I mean, it's it's easy to sort of make generalizations uh, talking in this way, but if you look at the the phenomenon of uh, incels and um, the all these young guys who are like following uh, a, a a, you know, a moron like Jordan Peterson, right? Um, or uh, the, the the school shootings uh, and, you know, these shootings in public over and over again, um, all over the place. Uh, these are symptoms, right? These are symptoms. Uh, the, the support that Trump has found uh, among uh, Americans in the middle class, uh, in 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 the working class uh, on the coasts and in the flyover states, you know there's 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 a nihilism at work. Uh, there's a there's a there's a terror of the void, right, uh, and of a desire to make meaning, to make life meaningful, even if even to the point of violence, right? I mean that's if words stop making sense, then at least you can depend on action. You can do something, and that means something. If you if you kill someone, that means something. Um, and uh, more and more people are making, you know, are making this decision. Uh, and it seems to be this kind of um, this phenomenon, right, in our culture that that seems to be increasing. Um, and you can find other symptoms as well. I talk about, you know, the TV shows like Game of Thrones or Walking Dead or whatever, or or Westworld. Uh, I mean, you could, we could, we can do that kind of thing and talk about more specifically, like, you know, um, that kind of cultural symptom. But I think if you if you look at the culture from sort of a medium view, if you step back and you can see uh, a pervasive, pervasive nihilism and and what's more an anxiety about nihilism right a reaction against the fear that this is all meaningless and it goes nowhere right and a desire and an and an acting out uh, in order to create meaning in the world even if even in, and sometimes especially through um through action but you don't have to find that meaning meaning through as you point out, nationalism, sectarianism, war, and racial, racial hatred. Why doesn't that sense of meaninglessness lead to a search for true meaning to life via collectivism, peace, and love for your fellow human? That's hard. <laughs> it's hard, and it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to, you know, so I guess two things. One, um, that the idea, the, our connection to really universal sorts of values is is quite tenuous, right? And it's it's the project of a lifetime, right? This is sort of you see, um, you know, religious ascetics, spiritual strivers, people, philosophers, you know, like like Plato, um, the way he presents Socrates, right? Working to help people 
over years strive toward uh, kind of universal universal ideals that that aren't reducible to tribalism or nationalism or sectarianism or whatever. Um, because those those kinds of I like committing yourself to those kind of ideals demands a kind of repudiation of one's specific historical embodied territorial ethno religious identity, right? Like if you're committed to like everybody you know, everybody deserves equality and we need to love everybody and we need to have compassion for everybody. Like that's a huge, that's a tremendous uh, burden and that's a tremendous um, uh, challenge, right? Because in our day-to-day lives, right, it's it's me and it's maybe the people around me and I got to take care of that and I got to go to work and I got to pay my bills and I have to, you know, I want my cable and I have to like, this guy cuts me off in traffic and it's all about sort of me and mine. And those are where my investments are. Those are where my physical embodied lived investments are. And to, so, so to say no to that, right. Um, it's like, it's like, it's like Jesus on the Mount, right. Saying, you know, you can only come to me if you give up your parents. You can only come to me if you're willing to die. Right. Um, it's this old spiritual idea that the path to wisdom is learning to die, right? And I talk about that in my first book, and I talk about it more in this one. Um, but it's tremendously difficult. Uh, it's not, I, you know, it's, I'm not confident that it's something that will ever, <laughs> will ever take hold in the majority of human beings, right? There's just, because it's a, it's a difficult thing to do. You write, scientific materialism, taken to its extreme, threatens us with meaninglessness. If consciousness is reducible to the brain and our actions are determined not by will but by causes, then our values and beliefs are merely rationalizations for the things we were going to do anyway. Most people find this view of human life repugnant, if not incomprehensible. Now, in your opinion, does atheism make life meaningless because I know I'm going to get feedback from atheist listeners and before they send those emails and direct messages I want to make certain I have your response ready can you find meaning in life without religion or spirituality in some sense can you do you think that kind of meaning in life is lost when you are an atheist this is the amazing so this is the amazing thing about being a human being right I'm not sure that we really have free will. I don't believe that we were put on this planet by some god or aliens or uh, I don't know what, flying spaghetti monster, right? There's no evidence for that. Uh, We're animals that evolved out of other animals, and we've been extremely successful on this planet as apex predators, and we've overrun our environment, and we're probably mostly... We're headed for a, you know, a population correction um, that's going to be pretty ugly. Um, but, right, but the thing that we're really good at as humans is, is adapting. And part of the way that we do that is through this, what we're doing right now, you and me, right? We're like talking, we're using 
symbols, we're using words and concepts to articulate um, and elaborate a model of reality, right? We're participating in a kind of collective storytelling that is the project of culture. We're making meaning. Right now, you and I having this conversation, we're making meaning. And that's what we do as humans, is we make our lives meaningful in order to organize collectively to achieve goals that we could never accomplish on our own. Uh, So, yes, human life is meaningless, but it's not meaningless at all because that's what we do as humans is make meaning, right? That's how we organize ourselves together collectively. And so this is kind of, this is the, what hope I have um, for our ability to sort of get through this upcoming transition to some other existence. Um, what hope I have is that we might be able collectively, right, to to create a new story, create a new collective sense of meaning, right, that's going to help us make that transition in a less horrible way than it, than it will, than, than what will happen if we, if we don't, if we keep clinging to the story that we have, right, that like technology will save us and everything's going to get better and our identities are constructed through um, consumption and, uh, you know, our cars and so on. Like if we keep clinging to that it, and our identities are constructed by race and nationality and so on, if we cling to all that, we're, we're, it's going to be, it's going to be bad. It's going to be very bad because that's, that story is not working. Um, so hopefully some, we can create something new, some new collective sense of meaning that will help us make this transition um, in, in a less, less catastrophic and horrible way. Right. And you point out how we need to let our civilization die. Now, that might sound incredibly frightening to people, but have other human civilizations died in the past and humans survived with a new civilization that became something that was inconceivable and completely unrecognizable from the past? Over and over again, right? It's happened over and over again. I mean, that's human history, is the history of failed civilizations. Uh, you know, we, you know, sometimes in the West and the U.S., right, we, we have this kind of Whig version of American history where, like, we are the culmination of, of civilizations sort of building on each other, right? There's the Greeks and the Romans and then medieval Europe and then the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and industrialization. And now we're here and we've, we just, we're the greatest, we're the best. But that's a, that's a, that version of history ignores the fact that, uh, you know, ancient Greek civilization failed, it fell apart. Roman civilization failed, it fell apart, right? Medieval European civilization was, you know, it, it broke apart there, there, and it, and it didn't work and it, it changed into something else over and over again. And this is not even to, you know, bring up, um, you know, various civilizations in Asia or the Americas, right? Um, it's one of the, one of the 
greatest or one of the most instructive maybe um, locations to look at this kind of transformation is is uh, in the European conquest of the Americas, right? Because you had civil multiple civilizations um, that were completely destroyed by uh, the European conquest, um, and something new happened. Uh, I I don't think it's a great model of how to of how to do that, but um, I think there's a lot to learn there, right? From what happened and how um, how people thought about and were able able to think about the transition. Um, Jonathan, the philosopher Jonathan Lear has a book about this uh, called Radical Hope, which looks at um, what the the Crow tribe in North America how they were handling the conquest of the plains uh, differently from, say, the Sioux, and what sort of consequences there were for the for that um, for a more adaptationist point of view, right, which the Crow had versus a more resistant point of view, which the Sioux had. Um, and then, you know, there's lots of other, there's lots to say about this and, and it's very complicated and, um, uh, but there's a, there's a lot, uh, I think of interest there, uh, for us to look at. We are speaking with Roy Scranton, author of We're Doomed, Now What? Essays on War and Climate Change. The last essay in your book is really intense, and it's a topic that I've wanted to talk about for a long time on this show. Uh, I found some writers who are writing about it, uh, but the way that you write about it is really eye-opening. You write about holding your daughter, Rosalind, for the very first time as a newborn, and how you cried for joy, and then sorrow, quote, looking out the window over the hospital parking lot, the rows of cars, the strip mall across the street, the flat, ugly, rust-belt sprawl of northern Indiana, box stores and drive throughs drainage ditches and concrete and waste fields that might have once been oak groves, a world in which the landscape had been ravaged and brutalized as a matter of course and in which any possibility for living in harmony with nature had been evacuated. Birds and bees and frogs were all dying. The seasons were out of joint. And instead of grieving, people were on their phones. My partner and I had, in our selfishness, doomed our child to life on a dystopian planet, and I could see no way to shield her from the future. You said to your daughter, I'm sorry. I told her, weeping as her tiny fingers gripped mine, I'm sorry you have to live in this broken world. How do you reckon your awareness of an apocalyptic future and your, and your partner's decision to have a child? It's difficult. Uh, it's difficult uh, negotiating with the um, with a sense of despair that opens up uh, sometimes. It's difficult um, making sense of the choices uh, and the, um, the sort of options that are presented to me as now apparent, right in 21st century United States culture, right? I'm I'm have to think about my daughter's future life. In society, tells me to think about my daughter's future life in certain ways, like a college fund and um, and this and that, and like what's her career, like what's her job 
going to be? How is she going to get a job? How is she going to have financial security? Um, and at the same time, right, there's this deep awareness that all this is is dead. Like, this civilization is over, and we're sort of going through the motions at this point. Um, and so how do reconciling that is, uh, it's not something you do once and then it's, it's done, right? Like it's a, it's a constant process. One of the things I keep coming back to, uh, actually is uh, from another essay in the book. Um, in 2014, I went back to Baghdad for Rolling Stone. Um, and, uh, wrote about it in the magazine and, and the version in the, in the book is, uh, is the like directors, the writer's cut. Like it's a much longer version of, of that trip because it was a really important trip for me. And part of that <clears throat> was talking with people who lived in Baghdad, uh, poets and writers and, uh, students, uh, and cops, uh, and all kinds of people. Uh, and even, you know, I talked to one guy who had come to the U S he'd gotten a visa to bring his wife to the U.S. And when he found, when they found out she was pregnant, they decided to move back to Iraq, which just, I mean, it seems like that's a crazy idea. But he found the U.S. so uh, racist and, uh, and so disconnected from where the meaning in his life was that he would rather, he wanted to raise his child in the place where he felt connected to life, where life was meaningful to him. Um, and then other people I met, I talked to, you know, one poet especially who, you know, he'd been thrown in prison by Saddam and he was so excited when the U.S. came. Um, that he was dancing in the streets, but then, of course, that whole, the, the U.S. invasion and occupation uh, basically was a load of crap in the end uh and he's profoundly disappointed and very pessimistic and yet what he told me one thing he told me I asked him like are you are you hopeful about Iraq's future and this is 2014 you know things had been going okay there was a new election coming but ISIS had just emerged and there was a real question about what happens now and he told me Beyond, they, he told me he wasn't hopeful, but that beyond hopelessness, past hopelessness, there is a new kind of hope that opens up, which is a faith in in the tissue of human existence, right? That basic tissue of human existence, our connection to one another, our ability to persist, our ability to persist in even the worst conditions. Our ability to make joyful, meaningful, rich lives in the shittiest, worst places, right? Human beings have lived on this earth for like 200,000 years. Human beings, modern homo sapiens, right? And only for the last 50 have we had, in, in the U.S., right, have we had this kind of pattern of living that we think is essential to happiness. For most of human existence, like... Life has been pretty, you know, pretty gritty, pretty, pretty scrubby, right? Uh, so 
And, but there's no evidence at all to suggest that people before now were more miserable than people are now. In fact, uh, you know, some evidence suggests uh, just the opposite. Uh, you know, that this that our modern technology, right, has actually made us less happy than we were when we had uh, simpler, simpler lives. Uh, so, you know, the future is the future is inescapably grim. But uh, I do have hope that my daughter can have a rich and meaningful and worthwhile life, even in those conditions, because because that's what human beings do. But just to be just to be real quick, uh, clear, real quick, you're not saying that we have to retreat to an earlier time to all of a sudden start acting like. 15th century human beings. I want to make sure that because in your in your book you're in, in your book you say no. we can't let that we can't let our creativity to be dulled or to be ignored. We need to move forward, but that still might bring us to ideas of our past, correct? That's right. I mean it's more to the more to the point. It's not that I don't think we should, it's that we can't. You just I mean we can't we literally cannot go back to the past. Um it's just, you know, I mean, it's 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 not even it's not feasible and it's not even possible, right? In so many ways, not least of which being that, um, you know, five hundred years ago, there were probably I don't know exactly what the number is, but there were probably around a billion people on the planet at most, at most, right? And now there's seven and a half billion. Um, so, like, to live the way people lived 500 years ago is, it's not possible to have this many people on the planet live that way, right? Um, the only way this many people can live on this planet is with modern technology. Um, so there's going to be, you know, something's going to happen. Uh, some There's going to be some kind of there's going to be transition, there's going to be, and there's, hopefully there's going to be innovation and creativity thinking through and working to make this transition um, less, to make this transition a change and not a total collapse into, you know, brutality and anarchy. One last question for you, Roy. Always an enjoyable and happy, fun time conversation with Roy Scranton. <laughs> Roy Scranton Thanks. is author of <laughs> We're Doomed, Now What? Essays on War and Climate Change. Uh, you can find out more about Roy by going to RoyScranton.com, and you can follow Roy on Twitter at Roy Scranton. One last question for you, Roy. And as always, it's our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, to be honest, though, having a child hasn't really inspired me to acts of self-sacrifice in the service of abstract and doubtful goals. Rather, the opposite. I've had to start thinking about schools, health care, housing, and investment in whole new ways. I feel a deep obligation to provide for my child's future within the constraints of contemporary American society, which demands making some kind of uneasy peace with America's brutality, hierarchical, racist, and individualist culture. This is how young radicals become middle-aged liberal hypocrites. My love for my daughter is overwhelming and irrational, and consumer capitalism exploits that every day by whispering, screaming in my ear that if I don't do everything I can to make sure my child 
child has more than yours, more whatever, the best whatever, and that then she's going to fall behind. The immense engines of capital, I have learned, possess a formidable array of forces that only activate once you've had children, when they fall on you with the force of a thousand suns. So does having children then make you more complicit in the problems that cause climate change and reinforce institutions you believe need to be destroyed to save us from global warming's worst consequences? It does. It does. Um, it, Wait, it's it, all Roy Scranton's fault. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was already complicit. We're all already complicit in it. There's no, I mean, as I talk about elsewhere in that essay, the only the only morally pure position on climate change is, uh, you know, to to commit suicide, right? Because that's the only that's the only way to like zero out your carbon footprint. <laughs> um, so we're all already complicit, but yeah, and yeah, like having a child does uh, increase that, doesn't complicate that, and and entangle it more. Um, you know, but then it's a question. It's a question, and, and this is part of what I'm trying to think through in that essay, is, like, you know, how, what does it mean? What do we need? What does it mean to make human life meaningful? What do we need to make human life meaningful? And if the only, if the way we decide to make human life meaningful is to eliminate everything that that we are built to find important, then then what kind of life is that, right? So, um, if, you know, if, if the way to make human life meaningful in relation to climate change is to give up having children, Right? Like, what does that mean for us? It means we're giving up the idea of the future. I mean, like we're trading, we're trading a possible future without climate change or with less climate change for the idea of no future at all, because it's children who, right, take humanity into the future, right? Uh, if we give up children, then we're giving up on the basic st- structures, uh, the, the biological cycles of human life. Um, and we can, but if, you know, again, if, we, if you take that line of thought, then it ends in a kind of self-immolation. And that's a position against which I, you know, I can, I, I, I have no defense. Uh, it's, it's a frightening and an awesome position, right? Uh, you know, and 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 I and I say that like with full awareness of of the reality of it, because this this uh, lawyer David Buckle, right, uh, did this in April of this year. He went down. He lives in New York. Uh, he's an LGBT attorney. And he went down to Prospect Park and lit himself on fire. And the notes that he left said that he did it because, because of climate change, as a protest against our inaction. And so he made that decision. And I, I have nothing but awe and respect for that choice. 
I can't do that. I can't make that choice. I'm, I'm in this, I'm committed to this world and life in it, complicit and complex as it is, right? So I have to give up on moral purity because I can't go that far, you know? So what I can do, though, is do the best I can to live ethically and to teach my daughter to live ethically in a broken world, right? To, to work toward uh, helping to create a, a new culture that can make this transition to um, a, new, a new world. Um, you know, I can commit to that. I can do all that. Uh, and, and that's all, but that's all I, you know, I'm still human, right? Like I can't, I'm still, I'm still trapped in being human. I'm not, I'm not the Buddha yet. <laughs> so ask me again when I'm, when I'm 80, we'll see. But, uh, for now I'm, I'm still, you know, muddling through like everyone else. Uh, Roy, it is always a pleasure speaking to you. I know that the content of that might not have been all that pleasurable, but I, I found our, I always find our conversations very enlightening. Thank you so much for being back on This Is Hell, Roy. Thanks for having me on, Chuck. It's always a pleasure. Chuck spoke with Roy Scranton in July of this year. Next up, Rada D'Souza from March. Rights are a 17th and 18th century idea that at one point in history seemed enlightening. But as those rights grew and became what we know today as human rights, they changed. In a world where the idea of political freedom leading to economic freedom has been turned on its head, the very concept of rights can undermine the good work of social movements. Here to tell us what's right and wrong about rights, lawyer, writer, and activist Rada D'Souza is author of the book, What's Wrong with Rights? Social Movements, Law, and Liberal Imaginations. Welcome to This is Hell, Rada. Hello, Chuck. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. You can, uh, Rada also works with the Campaign Against Criminalizing Communities, a group that brings together human rights activists, lawyers, journalists, and communities which find themselves targeted by what is called anti-terrorism legislation. You can find out more about that organization by going to their website, campac.org.uk, that's C-A-M-P-A-C-C, and you can follow Rada on Twitter at Rada D'Souza, you write that due to your involvement with social movements as a social justice act, uh, activist, as a constitutional lawyer involved in labor, civil rights, and public interest cases, and later as an academic, you witness the arguments on rights and social movements, uh, legal practice, and academic scholarship. You describe what you witness as radically different assumptions about rights, their histories, their role and purpose, and the interrelationships between rights and social philosophy and political theories and practices, and in legal doctrine and practice. To what extent are these differing ideas of rights in social movements, legal practice, and academic scholarship the areas where we turn to for our guidance on our understanding of rights actually in conflict with one another? Yes, I mean, it's exactly that kind of conflict which, uh, you know, I struggled with. Because when I was a lawyer, I thought the problem was with law, and with colonial law in particular. And then when I came to academia, it seemed that there was a completely different understanding. Because as a lawyer, and especially as a constitutional lawyer, one of the things that 
constitutional lawyers see is the state and how the state actually maneuvers the law. So you can have the stated purpose of the of a law, a piece of legislation, which is what lawyers deal with, that says, for example, you know, child labor is abolished. And then if you're a constitutional lawyer, you see the administrative apparatus and the way it works in all its open nakedness, if you like. And you can see how that stated purpose is never achieved. So this is the contradiction. And yet social movements think that by having a law, you can actually get justice. When I came to academia, believing that I could critique some of these assumptions that lawyers have, there were certain philosophical assumptions that I had to confront. For example, liberal philosophy, you know, which believes that by having rights, you somehow, it's the vehicle for justice. Because ultimately, people are looking for justice, especially in social movements. And then you find that that's not the case because of the way liberalism personalizes rights so that each individual becomes a bearer of rights. And the entire concept of rights is based on interests. So justice has nothing, very little to do with it. So the right bearer, the assumption is that there are each right bearer has certain interests which they will use that right for, which works very well for people with economic interests but it doesn't really work for people who are at the receiving end of the kind of economic systems that you have. And one of the things that liberal rights does is it completely separates economic rights from political rights, which is what my book deals with. And then I, when I was campaigning in the 90s and so on, and with, with social movements, on globalization, you know, and the effects of WTO and all of that, the whole rights discourse came back. And it seemed to me that the way the social movements were embracing this right as a vehicle for freedom simply could not see how rights work in law and the into, uh, philosophical and theoretical assumptions. And we were going back to something but this thing that globalization was bringing, because globalization was about law reforms everywhere, domestically, internationally, it seemed to me that this concept of an international regime of rights is something we hadn't thought about, and it didn't feel like the old rights, it didn't talk like the old rights, it didn't walk like the old rights, and that's when I started thinking that there was something fundamentally wrong with the way we are understanding rights within social movements. And you write how in the 1990s you were drawn into international issues, first during the campaign against Harkin's bill, the child labor deterrence bill proposed by U.S. Democratic Senator Tom Harkin. Uh, the bill prohibited importation into the U.S. products made by child labor, an issue with serious consequences for millions of poor Indian families whose children worked in the carpet industry, an important export item. How often did you witness good intent and successful, sellable politics, yet bad an outcomes? Did, did, did the politics and the idea of good intent overcome 
any ability for those who are writing this kind of legislation to see the potential for bad outcomes? Um, uh, that's a it's slightly tricky question because uh, I think generally in developing countries, it was easier to sell that argument because it was easy to argue that if you really want to, you know, want children to stop working and go to school and do what children usually do, then the parents have to be looked after. So you have to protect the parents' jobs, the parents' land, the parents' employment, and only by doing that can you protect children. That was an easy argument to make in most developing countries. But in developed countries, it was a slightly more difficult argument, and I think it was also sometimes had the potential to become divisive within social movements. For example, when this Harkins Bill campaign was on, I was invited to speak at several places, in Europe in particular. And typically, I would ask people in the audience to say, how many of you here think no child should have to go to work and all children should be going to school? And everybody would put up their hand. Then I would say, how many of you think that synthetic carpets are environmentally bad, they're not good for environment, not good for people, and therefore natural carpets are better? Now, there would be a slight hesitation, but, you know, still. And then I would say, how many of you are willing to pay more for your carpets so that children can, you know, go to school, parents can get work, and you, we can have environmentally friendly, you know, products? And that is where the whole issue was, you know, crystal clear. What were the options? And I think that was kind of, and it is very difficult, and I appreciate the difficulty in seeing, you know, how the, the kinds of standards of living and the, and the wealth of the West is, comes from, you know, a long history of exploitation around the world. It's a very difficult thing for a good, well-intentioned person to come to terms with the politics of that reality. But that is our reality. You, you, know? you write how social movement responses to four issues central to rights, uh, central to rights-based democracy, namely representative democracy, accountability of public officials and political leaders, property rights, and governance are woven into the structure of arguments and inform analysis of rights. How much is your work on rights then? Not only a reconsideration of rights, but a reconsideration of representative democracy, accountability, property rights, governance. Is this not only a discussion on rights, but a challenge to how we govern ourselves and the laws that govern us? Uh, absolutely. But rights are the foundations of the way we govern ourselves and the laws that govern us. Our entire legal system is based on a regime of rights. It's based on a regime of property rights. It's based on a regime of institutional rights, the very idea that corporations are like human beings, you know, legal persons and natural persons, and their rights, therefore they have rights, the very idea that, you know, people have rights. And so the whole, the whole legal, the foundations of our legal system is based on rights. But, however, and what, this is one of the arguments I tried to make, in the 18th and 19th centuries, people 
considered the linkages between political rights and, you know, social rights. But this seems to have vanished after 1945, after the end of the World Wars and the so-called new international order that we got after that. And increasingly, we don't make the connection between property rights, which is assumed as taken for granted. You know, that's the way the world is. So the whole discussion centers around social rights or human rights. And this is what I challenge. Because if you look at the World Bank's globalization agenda, the structural adjustment programs, they all bring back property rights, they internationalize property rights, and they universalize property rights. But we never make those connections. You do not want to reduce rights, a broader concept, to human rights, and uh, you write about what is entailed in reducing rights to human rights. What do you mean by reducing rights to human rights? Because this is a key concept in your book. Yes. Uh, Classical liberalism, you know, going back to John Locke and Tom, Thomas Paine and, you know, all those classical Enlightenment thinkers, Hobbes and so on, when they talked about rights, they talked about rights as something that included economic rights as well as social and political rights. And therefore, it was a whole, a much broader concept of rights. But what has happened since the end of World War II is the economic rights are just assumed and taken as given. So we don't talk about economic rights anymore. We don't talk about, you know, do corporations have rights? Do economic actors, what should their rights be? Is it okay to curtail their rights? And so on and so forth. Because that is something, it's holy cow. We can't touch it. So the whole debate since 1945 has been about social and political rights. But social and political issues are always underpinned by economic relationships. I mean, social and political things don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in the real world, and they are underpinned by you know, economic rights. For example, going back to the example of child labor, yeah. I mean, the rights of children to go to school or to have education is not independent from the rights of the parents to have a job. So you have this bizarre situation where globalization says you can't regulate, you know, you have to have austerity because of uh, debt issues. You have to have flexible labor markets, so to speak. That's, that's the globalization speak. And then we say we want children to have rights to go education. Well, the two things can't be separated, and that's what I'm saying, and that's what we have started to do. The human rights discourse completely delinks the social and political issues from the economic issues. And this is, I think, one of our major problems with rights in the present era. And you write about land rights. Well, you you write about all sorts of different rights. But you, you, when you mention land rights, uh, you write about land rights. But yet, as you point out, land is quintessentially a relationship. Land is not a thing. It is a bond that ties people to nature and to each other. Land is the glue that holds people and nature together to form places. Historically, rights transformed places into property 
It transformed a relationship into a thing, a commodity, as they are exercised today. Maybe uh, how much how much does a fight for rights lead to a commodification of all things? It does. And I think this is one of the problems and one of the reasons for my writing the book. Social movements often don't see the extent to which a demand for rights leads to commodification of rights, uh, of the thing that they are demanding. And, and this is why land is important, because land was one of the first uh, relationships to be commodified. So, and that is very closely tied to the history of modernity itself, to the history of capitalism, to the history of modernity. Because if you look at pre-modern societies, whether in Europe or anywhere else, the uh, people and land were together. Yes, there was exploitation. There were the feudal lords, the manorial system, and all of that. But the relationship to nature was a, a very closely tied one, and that was, you know, absolutely in entwined with nature. One of the things that capitalism does is to actually separate labor and nature. So people become one thing, one commodity, so you can sell your labor in a labor market, and land becomes a commodity. And this is the and this is done through the instrument of rights by establishing that your right to land is one thing, your right to sell your labor is another thing. And if you look at the early thinkers, John Locke, for example, they are very conscious of this, which is why they say labor itself is your property. The fact that you can work becomes your private property, which you can sell to whoever you want. And then, of course, land becomes private property. And this separates the relationship between nature and people and communities. And this is what I say, that this is what rights then goes on to do in every sphere of life, in every sphere of life. In every sphere. That's a really important part to stress because you write that right claims conceal what is entailed in our relationship to land and nature. Indeed, right claims facilitate the transformation of places into properties and homeland into home market. Yet, even the more radical movements on land, such as indigenous peoples' movements that are, uh, are, that are opposed to the very notion of land, forest, and water as property, frequently end up supporting the idea of human rights to land. To you, what explains even indigenous misreading and misunderstanding of human rights or rights in general? That is, I think, uh, uh, that it, it is, in the case of indigenous people, I think it's a question of finding the right language. You know, there is a lot of interpretation issues involved here, and it is about how do we articulate a political claim that is not in the language of rights. And I think that question is a wider one, because I think it's, it's there everywhere. How do you articulate, um, you know, claims to land, claims to water, claims to, you know, resources, claims to labor that is not in the language of rights? And to get to that, I think a deeper political discussion is needed on alternative forms of articulation of rights. And I think 
It is partly the inability of social movements to come together, bang their heads together to see how else can we do this. That is a major problem. And it remains a major problem because we have not deconstructed rights yet. How much do you... It remains the only, it remains the only vehicle for articulating political demands. Right. And we, we had this uh, long conversation last week with Julie A. Wilson about her book, Neoliberalism. How much do you see rights, claiming, rights claims uh, exacerbating, if not reinforcing, the neoliberal order? Are rights claims at the heart of the neoliberal order? Absolutely. But there are a new articulation of rights, and I think that's important. It's not the classical liberalism. Look, classical liberalism collapsed when capitalism collapsed in the middle of the last century. yeah. So the two World War eras are therefore, I see it as a very important period because that is when the old collapsed and the new emerged from that. And if you look at neoliberalism, and, and that was also the period when even John Maynard Keynes, for example, I mean, you know, he, uh, who says liberalism is dead. The socialists said liberalism was dead. The fascists said liberalism was dead. So there was a convergence of views from diverse political viewpoints that liberalism was no longer working. And indeed, it was not working because capitalism itself had collapsed at that time. So it was a question of how to revive capitalism. So the fascists had a certain answer, the socialists had a certain answer, and the neoliberals had a certain answer to it. And so the neoliberals rework liberalism of the 19th century, and they put it on a internationalized, globalized, you know, foundation that was actually more receptive to or, or worked better for monopolistic forms of capitalism, which emerged. And I think that reworking is what I say makes the rights, neoliberal rights, different from what you know, the, a 19th century rights was like. Of course, the neoliberals didn't get to dominate until the economic crisis of the early 60s and then 70s going on to 80s. They have, you know, risen and expanded in, in, in their influence. But the reworking begins during the interwar period when societies like the Montperlin Society was set up. And, you know, so I think, yes, the answer is, Rights are core to neoliberalism, but the kind of reformulated rights that we see with the rise of neoliberalism is something quite different from classical rights. So just because the word rights is used, the language is the same, doesn't mean the substance is the same. And you argue that economic freedoms and economic institutions are seen as the necessary conditions for political freedoms and democracy. Milton Friedman, a leading neoliberal thinker, makes this point explicitly reversing the position of political freedoms as the condition for economic freedoms. Uh, Friedman turns classical liberalism on its head. And then you ask, should social movements not question the ramifications of these inversions of classical liberalism for rights, which are so central to defining the relationships between economy, state and civil society. How much is that the definition to you of neoliberalism, that instead of viewing political freedoms as a way toward economic freedom, neoliberalism defines economic freedom as the step toward political freedom? Does neoliberalism change our priorities to economic 
freedoms ahead of political freedoms? That is the assumption they ask us to believe. I mean, and this is not just a theoretical assumption that people like Friedman and whoever and, and many others make, but it's you also see it in the practical policies of the World Bank, for example, of the IMF, for example, where they say, you know, you have uh, followed the market in the economic policies, and then there will be trickle-down of benefits to everybody. The trickle-down theory is an actual, uh, you know, a, a, develop, a practical policy development that comes from this idea that economic freedom will guarantee political freedom. And, and therefore, you know, you don't have to do anything. You just have to follow the neoliberal mantra for, you know, fiscal deficits or austerity or all those policies that they claim is going to make the cake bigger. This is World Bank language. And if the cake is bigger, then there will be more to go around. But the cake can get bigger and bigger and bigger and still not go around. And that possibility is what neoliberalism completely, uh, you know, forecloses or, 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 you know, stops you from thinking about. And this is a fundamental reversion because in classical liberalism, political freedoms were needed to get economic benefits. This is the basis of trade unionism. You need labor rights so that unions can bargain for better wages and so on. So I think that reversal is quite important for us today because, you know, we can't. And, and if you look at social movements since at least since the debt crisis in the 80s, social movements have kind of demanded that, or, or believed that if you have rights, then somehow World Bank will change or IMF will change or the U.S. policymakers will change their way they do things. But that's not happened and that's not how it's meant to be, at least for the policymakers. You write that European Enlightenment thinkers took rights as an ethical and moral concept in ancient European philosophy and used it as a trope for a utilitarian economic and political philosophy supportive of emerging capitalism. As a trope, rights were pivotal to building institutions that replaced uh, feudal institutions. The prefix human to rights has invisibilized the institution building role of rights. The prefix human to rights continues to evoke ethical and moral sensibilities and conceals its utilitarian purpose from view. It should not appear paradoxical, therefore, that the World Bank and displaced people both defend human rights. So more than anything, are human rights, in your opinion, what creates, builds, and reinforces the institutions of capitalism? In the modern context, yes, because this is what it's the claim for rights by social movements that has actually reinforced the World Bank's land acquisition policies, their development policies, their debt policies. And the more social movements ask for rights, the more World Banks and institutions like that use it for actually regulating, uh, you know, the, the, or developing economic institutions. And I mean, I think one of the most significant shifts that comes in World Bank is they went from saying, you know, World Bank has nothing to do with human rights 
in the 60s and 70s to saying we are the only major big champions of rights. And they, it's the World Bank that brings socioeconomic rights right into the heart of the debates around you know, debt cancellation, around uh, uh, equitable trade between countries of the North and South and so on. And, but because the language of rights allows them to actually appropriate a demand from social movements and then institutionalize it in a way in which social movements have very little control. I mean, social movements don't control how World Bank operates or how it does its lending or borrowing or whatever it is. And you point out that the domain of ideas, uh, that within the main domain of ideas, uh, rights that remain secure and insulated from the reality of dramatic, disconcerting, and violent changes in the world around us. The question for social movements and critical scholars wanting to change the world we live in is to ask, what do rights actually do in the world? How are rights insulated from the reality of dramatic, disconcerting, and violent changes in the world? Because th there is a big uh, a gap, if you like, in the discourse of rights. Typically, when we talk about rights, we talk about Oh, you know, people don't have land, and therefore can they get land? People don't have uh, uh, food, so can we have right to food, and so on. And that discourse assumes institutions work in their, you know, as they are supposed to in an ideal world, that interest groups are somehow moral, ethical groups, um, and therefore you know, the capitalists or whoever will behave in a moral, ethical way, uh, when in fact, corporations are not even human. So, the extent, you know, to what extent can we expect them to believe, behave ethically? And that is a moot question. So, I think that this is, the, and therefore, the discourse is, De disconnected from the way the real world works. So we no longer, we are no longer able to see if we demand right to food, who's going to implement it? How is it going to be implemented? Who, what are the institutional mechanisms? Who is driving this demand for right to food? Why is the World Bank keen to have it on its, you know, in, in its policy manual? And so on. So we don't any longer flesh out how these things are going to work. Um, let me give you a very concrete example of this in, 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 from India. You know, some years ago, I think it was 2004 or five, there was a lockout. The employer of tea plantations in eastern India locked out their workers. Okay. Now, because the employers have a right to lock out their workers, they lock them out. But the conditions, plantations, are a quintessentially colonial institution. So the Plantation Act allows the plantation owner to provide accommodation for the workers on the plantation and has the responsibility to supply food to them. So what happens when the workers are locked out they have no food because the employer is not providing them with food. They don't have an address because they live in the plantation. Now, 
there was a starvation death on tea plantations as a result of this. What were social movements asking? And these are lovely young people, very committed, very well-intentioned. They ask, oh, we need food security. We need right to food. And you have to tell them, look, the question here is not right to food. The question here is Plantation Act, which gives the plantation owner complete authority and control over the lives of these people. That is the problem, you know. And then you say to them, okay, let's look at the institutions. Does the state have the authority to intervene? It does. Because in India, the office of the district collector has the right already from colonial times to go and make a spot investigation. And if people are dying or if there is a calamity or anything, he has the rights and the powers to make sure that food is supplied or whatever steps need to be taken to redress that problem is there. So you ask people, this, this, is, this power is already there. Why do you want a new right? And they will say, oh, but the collector doesn't do his job. Okay, if the collector doesn't do his job, how do we know that under the new Right to Food Act, whoever is authorized to administer the act is going to do it? If this is an old established institution, the collector, district collector's office, and he's not doing it, how do we know that the new guy is going to do it? So it's, not, it's their inability to think through the practical and concrete ways in which this is going to play out in polit political life, in social life, in daily life. And I think it's that disjuncture that is really becoming politically problematic. And not only do you write about food rights and land rights and water rights, you mentioned how the right to happiness today is seen as a statistically measurable goal. In 2011, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a resolution titled Happiness Towards a Holistic Approach to Development. They called on member states, UN agencies, and international organizations to develop new indicators and other initiatives as a contribution to the United Nations development agenda. What does it reveal to you about our current concept of rights? when we view them as something whose success at attaining those rights can be determined by some sort of measurement, by some sort of metric? How much is the problem with rights today that it quantifies? It seeks metrics that will determine the significance, even success, of what should be our relationships. Quantification is, again, you know, a, a, a feature, if you like, a characteristic feature of the post-world era, post-World War era. Quantification comes with monopoly capitalism. Quantification comes with expansion of the scales of operations, of corporations, of institutions, of governance, of international law, etc. And the larger the scale, the more quantification mechanisms we need to have to run large institutions. And that is what links quantification to the, ex the, the uh, scope and the scale of institutions, because that's the governance tool. And quantification is an important governance tool. So we have quantification for everything. It started with statistics and policymaking during the world wars, but now everything is, has to be quantified. 
because if it's not quantified, we can't arrive at policy too. And that is why it becomes a part of governance. So in coming back to this question of right to happiness, well, before the the SDGs, we had the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, which tried to quantify poverty, quantify hunger, quantify how much food is needed for people to survive, and so on and so forth. It failed. Now, instead of asking why has it failed, we say, okay, let's bring, you know, happiness into it. Maybe it was not food. Maybe it was something else. So let's bring that into into the whole. And then we have a whole indexation of happiness. In the 80s, we tried to have indicators for development, you know, the human development indicators. So each time we kind of develop another a set of indicators for as, you know, to identify our problems or to list nations or rank nations on some kind of scale. It's actually a governance tool to see which countries will get aid, which countries will not, which corporations will have a human rights program somewhere, which ones will not, because that is why indicators are needed. At the level of small communities, they don't need indicators to see if somebody has got food, they don't need indicators to see if somebody is feeling sad or happy or whatever. So I think it's also the inability to understand what indicators do. They actually give, they allow a governance model based on rights. Just a few more questions for you, Radha. Um, you, uh, you write that in the international domain, economic matters take the legal form of contracts between states or between states and international organizations or international economic organizations. In such international contracts, the will of the state is read as the will of the people. The distinct, distinction between citizens and states is the bedrock of classical liberalism. Nevertheless, international contracts bind the states even after the people of the state have changed their will through representative politics. Is the state then representing the will of the people less and less through contracts with these IOs and IEOs? How much does the state become less representative of the will of the people when it is beholden to groups under contract like the WTO, IMF, and World Bank? And is that, and to what degree are those organizations impediments to democracy? Well, it depends on who you include and exclude from democracy. Because if you include legal persons and natural persons in democracy, then definitely because the legal persons dominate democracy. If you include only natural persons, then, you know, this is completely contrary to democracy. Because, you know, as uh, individual, as a human being, I have certain limitations. I am not equal to Monsanto in theory or in practice. It's only the law that considers me, Radha D'Souza, equal to Monsanto. But in practice, I am nothing compared to what Monsanto is. For a start, my life is very finite. I was born on a, at a certain time, and I know I will die one day. But with corporations, there is no death and there is no birth. It's indefinite, you see. So, I mean, it starts with ontological differences like that. 
it and i think it's this conflating legal persons and natural persons that is even creating this problem of are our democracies truly representative of people or not because as i said it depends on who you include and exclude from people now when social movements talk about people they have in mind only natural persons but when states talk about democracy when institutions talk about democracy they are not limiting it to natural persons they include in that natural and corporate persons and legal entities and this is the problem and i think social movements instead of demanding more and more rights if they actually started insisting that there must be differentiation between legal persons you know legally incorporated entities and natural persons and that natural persons must have privileges over and above legal persons we might actually start seeing different kind of politics how much do you think demanding whatever it is we want not the right to having what we want is the most effective way toward real social transformation i think i i say that towards the end of my book that the more important thing is not to ask for a right to something but the thing itself so we don't ask for a right to food but we say we want food because we don't have food and we need food we don't say we want a right to house but we say we want a house to live you know and if demands are then translated into that it opens the pathway to see how we can then you know develop a politics that will actually give food that will actually give house or education or whatever it is that people need now because we start with rights and then the rights are given so there's a legislation you know right to housing and then we are, we don't know what to do because the property owner also has the right to property and then i have my right to house so whose rights take precedence who has greater power in the market and all those things starts to come in the way of actually realizing those rights instead of that we say we don't care how you do it we want a house to live because we need one i think the politics is going to change radically and i think one of the demand one of the big differences between let's say the anti colonial movements the socialist movements that came in the middle of the last century that developed in the middle of the last century and now is they didn't ask for right to housing or right to equality or right to be free they just said you know anti colonial movements said please pack up and leave they didn't ask for right to self determination and if you to see the slogans of that time they said we are exploited we don't have food and colonial policy is a big part of it therefore end colonialism that was the demand and i think we have come very far from that kind of very direct simple articulation of our needs one last question for you rada we have been speaking with lawyer writer and activist rada de souza who is author of the book What's wrong with rights? Social movements, law, and liberal imaginations. Rada works with the Campaign Against Criminalizing Communities, a group that brings together human rights activists, lawyers, journalists, and communities, which find themselves to, uh, targeted by what is called anti-terrorism legislation. You can learn more about that organization. 
by going to CAMPAC, going to their website, campacc.org.uk, and you can follow Rada on Twitter at Rada D'Souza. One last question for you, Rada, and as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, a question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write to rephrase the question as, why do they want rights, instead of, what do we want from rights? The question for social movement and critical scholars, at least, is, can more rights help us walk the road of human emancipation? But there are struggles for rights here in the U.S. that are celebrated, like the civil rights movement, the U.S. civil rights movement in the 1960s, or more recently, the gay rights movement. Is this a different form of rights, or do the struggle for people of color and gay liberation rights, uh, or, or I should say and gay liberation, also suffer from a misunderstanding and a lack of any deeper examination of the impact of rights? I think they do suffer from the same uh, lack of understanding of rights and the deeper impact of rights. The problem in the United States is, from whatever little I know about the country, is not that African Americans don't have rights or equality. The problem is how the police shoots them down. That's the problem. And that is not a question because the Constitution does not give give the rights. I mean, you look, I I don't know, as an outsider, I wonder about the whole debate on gun control, for example, the right to bear arms with the Constitution gives. The Constitution doesn't seem to say, to the best of my knowledge, that only white Americans have the right to bear arms and not the black Americans. But you see how the whole social, uh, the way in which that right is actually, you know, uh, uh, plays out in society. I mean, I have not yet come across a black movement that says we should have right to bear arms, at least not in a long time. So it's not, it, it's how these, um, why is it that, you know, we have, we don't have more black groups bearing arms in the face of this police violence, even though the Constitution gives them as much rights as anybody else? I mean, and I think these, there are deeper, the same kind of questions that actually need to be asked in the U.S. or North America or anywhere else for that matter. Rod, I really appreciate you being on. We had a conversation last week with a journalist and investigative journalist, Candace Byrne, and she was talking to us about a new categorization that the FBI has come up with called black identity extremism. And sure enough, as you were just discussing about having a black right, uh, having people of color having uh, rights to arms, a gentleman is now in jail and seeking a long, uh, maybe uh, in jail for a very long time, facing a very long prison term, because in fact, he was African-American and did support uh, having uh, uh, the Second Amendment rights, actually the right to bear arms for black people as well. So unfortunately, here in the United States, that leads black people to being in jail. So Rada, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. This is a fascinating, fascinating book. At the end of the year, every year, I list my 10 favorite books to be featured here on this show, and I can't imagine that you will not be in that list. This is really a book that everybody should be reading. We're talking, we've been talking to Rada D'Souza, who is author of What's Wrong with Rights, Social Movements, Law, and Liberal Imaginations. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you so much, Chuck, for having me on the show. It's been a great conversation. Take care. Chuck spoke with Rada D'Souza in March of this year. Next up is Tithi Bhattacharya.
teachers' strikes are sweeping the nation. They're all the craze for 2018, but they're not about some new labor movement. They're about something else that's even more exciting. Here to tell us what the strikes are really about, Tithi Bhattacharya posted the Guardian story, Women are leading the wave of strikes in America. Here's why. The spreading teachers' strikes are for wages and benefits, but they arise from a social landscape scoured by gender and racial inequalities. Welcome to This Is Hell, Tithi. Thanks for having me. Uh, T.T. is professor of history at Purdue University, and you can find out more about her at her website, ttbhattacharya.net, which we have linked at our website. Uh, her first book was entitled The Sentinels of Culture, Class Education and the Colonial Intellectual in Bengal, and it's about the obsession with culture and education in the middle class. What we're going to talk about today, women leading the labor strikes across the United States, you foresaw back in January when you had another article at The Guardian, that one was headlined, We Need a Feminism for the 99%. That's why women will strike this year. Is it Trump that makes these strikes by women predictable? Because the low pay and poor benefits and prioritizing of corporate tax cuts over public education, the situations in West Virginia and Oklahoma in particular, those were all conditions that existed before Trump. So how much can we thank Trump for these strikes? Well, um, I think that's a very important question, and I'll try to have two answers to that. The first is, yes, of course, um, those conditions existed before um, Trump's election as president, um, and that kind of is indicative of how both of the major parties in this country has deprioritized public service and um, all the essential services that we need to live, like education, health care, pensions, and benefits, have been um, deprioritized and uh, put behind uh, questions of corporate interests. So that's the sort of bipartisan agenda in this country for a long time. So that's one proof of that, as you point out. The other is, has Trump been the catalyst to all of this? Yes, in a way. Um, I think we need to um, see, however, that the teacher strikes um, that are now sweeping the country, um, there was a few strikes. Uh, the Chicago Teachers Union, for instance, in 2012, which preceded this wave of strikes. And that was, again, against a Democrat mayor of your city. So um, so the conditions had existed and protests had certainly um, happened against those conditions before. But I do think that several um, factors uh, that have energized uh, new women's movement is contributing towards the strikes and towards the sort of fed upness of a vast majority of working people um, against the neoliberal um, conditions that we're forced to live under. So I think Trump um, is the sort of um, vicious cherry on a cake that has been baking for a long time of um, neoliberal um, agenda against working people. But that vicious cherry has made a difference by drawing together all these threads of working conditions, of overt racism, of overt misogyny in, uh, in, in a sort of public discourse coming from 
the White House. Um, and that has certainly galvanized, I think, a lot of the protests. The mainstream U.S. media have been, you write this, uh, the mainstream U.S. media have been generally supportive of the strikes. They have highlighted how decades of neoliberal cuts to public education have kindled these flames. They have talked about how stagnant salaries mean teachers are unable to keep pace with the rising cost of health care. What they have not talked about is this. The strike action is led almost exclusively by women. Now, we spoke with Angie Johnson, a reading and language arts teacher at Westwood Middle School in West Virginia during the strike in early March. Aside from women's role in the movement, fracking's role was also ignored when West Virginia's strike was being covered. Teachers there were bringing attention to public education spending cuts while fracking companies were getting massive tax breaks. During the Oklahoma teachers' strike, however, I did hear fracking mentioned on national network TV news. But what does it say to you about the establishment media and the way that they're covering these strikes when a demand related to environmentalism, as well as the role of women, are not part of their storyline? You know, um, that is unfortunate, but I think the mainstream media is reflecting something that is even more unfortunate, which is the old sort of union movement that has existed in this country uh, since the um, post-war period, which is that um, union leaders um, have unfortunately followed this model of uh, union work and unionism, which sees the labor struggle as merely wage struggle, as merely a struggle to get a better contract. It completely discounts or separates the lived experience of both its members and how their members are not just workers in the workplace, but our community members, our churchgoers, our mothers and fathers, and and have gender and race, which um, shape the way they uh, get jobs and shape their work experience within the workplace. So if you make the workplace this sort of de-gendered, de-raced um, if your conception of the workplace is degendered and de-raised, then you're not even going to win on the workplace because unless you address issues of gender and race along with and along with the wage question and how that shapes the wage question, then this is an unionism that people cannot relate to. And it is no surprise then that uh, union membership is uh, one of the lowest in, in history in this country. So uh, when you talk about uh, environment and um, and the question of uh, women leading the strike, I mean, race is an equally um, sort of um, invisibilized issue in the new union movement. I'm going to um, tell you something that um, I have just recently written about, and um, um, I, I want your, uh, uh, you know people to consider. So I went down to Louisville, Kentucky, and the reason uh, during their stick-out movement, and the reason I went down was because some leaders in the stick-out movement were accusing black teachers, teachers of color, and social organizations um, like Black Lives Matter of dividing the movement. And their charge was that, you know, while the stick-out movement was unified around the defense of pension, Teachers of color were driving a wedge into it by raising 
a contentious issue, namely race. So I went to speak with um, some uh, very, very prominent leaders of the Sikhout movement who were very committed union organizers as well, but who were black. And so I said, well, what is this thing about you guys? Because you guys have been leading the Sikhout movement. What is this about you dividing it? And that's how, by talking to these teachers and students of color, I found out about another bill, HB 169, that was being ran through along with the, you know, a privatization of the pension bill for teachers. And this particular bill was uh, called the gang bill, right? So according to this bill, the police was given, um, you know, new uh, enhanced rights stop and frisk a group of three or more people just hanging out in a street corner. And later they uh, amended that to say five or more people. Okay. And they said, and the bill claimed something like, I forget the exact words, but if we didn't uh, pass this bill, it would hinder the safety of citizens of Kentucky. And that bill has now passed along with the, uh, terrible pension bill. And, you know, to teachers of color immediately and, and students, it was very, very clear the overt racial overtones of, of the bill. And, you know, communities of color are over-policed, so obviously everyone knew who would be considered um, gang members. And Kentucky is a state that disproportionately incarcerates um, African-Americans and Black youth in Kentucky are more likely to be tried as adults than uh, white juveniles. And so in this condition, this bill came and clearly aimed at uh, people of color and particularly um, black folks. And um, the, the, some leaders of the Sikhout movement refused to use this fantastic moment to which, where, you know, where they had this tremendous tool, which was the sort of strike tool to win demands for the, the, the whole collective, they refused to use this to um, point out the racism of the bill. And, you know, one argument can be, well, this is an add-on to the pension struggle, right? So it's not intrinsic to the pension struggle. But, um, you know, the teachers I spoke to basically showed so clearly how we cannot um, separate this issue from the general attack on, on public education. Um, they said that, you know, safety is fundamental. If my students are not feeling safe, then they're not learning. If they're not properly fed, they're not learning. If they don't feel loved and accepted, and if the police are, you know, um, over-policing their neighborhoods, um, their parents are in danger of being incarcerated, then they're not going to come to class, you know, ready to learn about algebra. They're going to be worrying about their life. So um, this is not a situation where, uh, you know, you should be passing these overt racist bills and cutting funding to uh, family counseling uh, centers, which they're also doing in Kentucky, along with the pension bill, because that directly affects the uh, learning conditions 
of the students and the teaching conditions of the teachers in classrooms. So these are not separate issues either. You know, Arizona um, teachers are going on strike for Monday. Yay for Arizona. Uh, but there also race is a very, very important issue because all the studies um, show that, um, you know, they, they, the students uh, nationally are absolutely, the anxiety of students has increased nationally because of Trump's um, uh, increase um, of, of giving more power to ICE, you know, the um, immigration and um, customs uh, people. And these ICE raids have been devastating uh, for um, immigrant communities and devastating for, um, for children in public schools. And so, you know, there is a there is some kind of um, saying that ICE does not actually um, go into schools. There's some rule that they don't go into public schools to actually deport students or teachers. But <laughs> ICE follows that rule to its letter, but not in its spirit, of course. So parents have been picked up by ICE vans outside of the school when they come to drop off their uh, for their children. So, I mean, this is an atmosphere of fear, intimidation, uh, misogyny, and racism, which is not a context in which public education and children learning in the, you know, sort of nesting security of safety and love can flourish. So these issues are not add-ons. These issues are sort of... Um, shaping uh, the way teachers and students live. So I think union movements need to take these absolutely seriously. So as far as shaping the way that people's, people live, you write that the prevalence of women in the teaching sector is undergirded by a more complex issue. Teaching is seen as women's work. And uh, <clears throat> you write that, uh, that you, we should look at this as a feminist project because women, whether in paid employment or not, do the majority of the actual caregiving at home and in the community. This is reflected in how teachers are conceiving the strikes. A common theme among the strikers is that they're striking for their students. When asked why they were uh, asking for a 20% pay raise, Rebecca Gorelli, an Arizona teacher, framed it beautifully. Our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. How can the idea of women being caregivers be seen as empowering or liberating? And I'm just I'm just concerned about it being seen being potentially sexist, not coming from you, but I'm just saying if you know, from my point of view, isn't viewing women as caregivers kind of the antithesis antithesis of feminism? Or what am I getting wrong about feminism? No, no, you're not getting that wrong about feminism. At all, yes, women should not. Care is needed for a community, family, a society to function, and women should not be the only ones responsible for it. Um, there should be a lot of money um, coming from the state to provide care in a in a public way. So, uh, in the sense of you know, good pensions, good benefits, and free childcare, universal healthcare. Medicare for all, you know, that kind of thing are all part of the caregiving and the state should <laughs> bear a large uh, amount of responsibility for that. But beyond the state, uh, men and women should absolutely share in the care. So, yes, it should never be just the task of women. 
the point here is, <coughs> is, is um, that currently, under our current um, situation, uh, women do provide, um, women are the majority caregivers, um, and this is wrong that they have to do the majority of the care work, but since they're doing it, the least that our lawmakers and our union leaders can do is to actually recognize that. Unless you recognize that, it can't be changed. So right now there is, an, um, again, a invisibilization of women's work and, and, and um, sort of there is no acknowledgement that um, women do do most of the care work um, and, you know, places in the uh, sectors in the labor market uh, that are uh, sort of considered traditionally as care work, such as nursing and, and teaching. But, well, I, traditionally is the wrong word because these didn't used to be considered women's work previously, as my article points out. But that has increasingly uh, been seen as uh, women's work. These sectors have been um, very selectively uh, uh, in, uh, underpaid, and because a vast majority of um, workers in these sectors are women, and um, and that is, I don't think that is accidental. Uh, the kind of misogynist um, arguments that have been coming from these um, governors of the state. So, for instance, West Virginia teachers were called dumb bummies um, so by their governor. And so these kind of things make it very clear that, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the right recognizes that it's women's work uh, in a misogynistic way. And uh, sort of the left has failed to recognize the kind of um, the kind of pressure that women face by being the sole caregivers, both in the workplace and at home. In the context of the teacher strike, I think um, this was reflected in two ways. One, because in communities, uh, women often are sort of more active in the community and, and building sort of social ties, social relations, going to coffee meetings with their church groups and so on. So once the strike started, uh, you know, a quick, a very quick network of social support was built almost immediately to support the teachers. And these were, uh, these were community organizations, churches, um, social uh, groups that came out immediately because these women who were teachers were not just teachers. They were church members. They went to these coffee meetings and so on uh, when they were not teaching. So these groups now came out quite quickly in support of, of the strike. And the care issue is very relevant because women end up being the majority caregivers. Um, Women are sort of um, uh, trained in a way um, to think in a particular way. So if, you know, um, I get invited to dinner I or I get invited to a conference to speak, my first thought is, uh, what about childcare that day? Okay, so 
these women who've been working so closely with their uh, students, when they decided to go on strike, their first thought was, you know, from a vast majority of my students, school is more than just education. This is where they get their only hot meal of the day. This is where they interact um, with other students. So it's a social world and it's a stable social world for many of my students who come from trauma or really, really uh, hard sort of uh, family lives, challenging family experiences. So if we go on strike, we are taking that away from our students and we can't do that. So immediately when these strikes have started, if you go through all of the uh, strike uh, 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 sites, you know, from West Virginia to Kentucky to Arizona, uh, women have worked um, very consciously to involve church groups to serve hot meals during the strike, has involved parents groups to, um, you know, sort of um, help with the picket lines. Sometimes in West Virginia, women strikers have carried food to the houses of the students. I mean, because it's a small state, it can be done. You know, so this was an amazing consciousness um, of uh, women who were leading the strike, but leading the strike not just in a workplace kind of way, but in a deeply social way. They were thinking of society in totality, not just in the workplace. And so this is, I think, very, very significant um, that uh, women are... Uh, that uh, happens, this kind of thing happens because primarily women are leading these strikes and are their main um, participants. We've been speaking with historian Titi Bhattacharya, who posted the Guardian story, Women Are Leading the Wave of Strikes in America. You can find out more about Titi at titibhattacharya.net, which we have linked directly at our website. One last question for you, Titi. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. The anti-war movement has been criticized by several past guests on this show for not continuing their actions as fervently during the Obama administration as they had during the Bush administration, even though the Obama administration had ramped up things like drone attacks around the world. How much do you fear that this strike movement is only going to be a movement during Republican administrations, disappearing during Democratic Party-run administrations, even when the executive branch is supporting, even enacting, anti-worker policy? Uh, I have fears. Um, uh, particularly because the union leadership in all of these states and uh, in, in these strike uh, in these strikes uh, are trying very hard to contain the spontaneous uprisings from below by striking teachers and trying to channel them into well let's make one or two small gains now but our big chance will be in November when we can uh, vote them out so vote them out in November has been the preferred policy of union uh, bureaucrats and officials um, and in order to tamp down the self-activity and the beautiful, um, uh, you know, militant action by striking teachers. So yes, it is a constant fear that that will 
you know, I am using a selective uh, pun here, that that will trump the, um, the fantastic action of the teachers. However, I'm also very, very hopeful because I think there is a possibility and, you know, as, as the left and as a feminist, I uh, thrive on possibilities because we have to uh, hope for a future. And there is a possibility right now, I strongly believe, for a new kind of union movement uh, to emerge. I, I, you know, having spoken to strikers uh, uh, endlessly uh, since uh, the West Virginia strike and being to some of these strike sites, I, I believe there is a new labor movement that is um, straining to be born right now. Um, this will be not your grandfather's labor movement, which, uh, you know, like in the Samuel Gompers day, uh, said that Chinese coolies were a threat to white workers or black workers were basically scabs. You know, not your grandfather's um, labor movement. This will be a new labor movement, which is composed of, um, you know, vast majority women and people of color, and it's going to be uh, multi-gendered and multi-racial uh, because the working class in America is multi-gendered and multi-racial. So uh, a, a new uh, a labor movement has to reflect those realities. And I do see in many of these cases, this new labor movement trying to be born because in almost uh, the vast majority of the strikes, the, the strikers have defied their union bureaucrats and demanded more because the union bureaucrats uh, were the first to say, oh, we've got like, you know, a morsel, uh, that's enough. And and the strikers have stood up to them and, and defied them, which was extraordinary because they were standing up to two major forces. One was the right-wing Republican um, attacks, and the other was their so-called own side, which was the union. So they stood up against both. And in West Virginia, they won. And we hope they win in Arizona next week. So those two things are on my mind at the same time, an anxiety about um, whether this will be channeled back into the graveyard of the Democratic Party, or it will be the beginning of a new union movement in this country. And I will always, always uh, put all my faith and hope in the latter. That mixture of hope and anxiety kind of defines the world that we live in right now. Tithi, I really appreciate you being on the show with us today. Thank you so much for being on. Tithi Bhattacharya wrote the Guardian article about the women's movement, the uh, strike movement that's happening here in the United States that is actually a women's movement. You can find out more by going to tithibhattacharya.net. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Chuck spoke with Tithi Bhattacharya in April of this year. Uh, next up, this is my favorite interview of uh, 2018, I think. Uh, this is Assad Haider talking about identity politics and moving beyond them and radical collective action. Identity politics are not what they used to be. They've been co-opted and controlled by politics that are the exact opposite of what the originators of identity politics believed. Here to explain, Assad Haider, author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Welcome to This is Hell, Assad. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Assad is a founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine, a fantastic publication, an investigative journal of contemporary politics, and this is far more cool. Assad is a Ph.D. candidate in the history of consciousness at UC Santa Cruz and a member of UAW 2865, the Student Workers Union at the University of California. And that might be the best part of any bio I have ever read on this show, Assad. So congratulations on that. Thank you. All right. So uh, let me ask you first. Oh, yeah, here we are. I'm all over the place with my notes today. You write that in 1977, the term identity politics in its contemporary form was introduced into political discourse by the Combahee River Collective, the CRC, a group of black lesbian militants, including founding members Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, we've introduced them, or we've interviewed them on the show in the past, and Demita Frazee, who wrote the influential collective text, A Black Feminist Statement. They did not believe politics should be reduced to the specific identities of the individuals engaged in it. As Barbara Smith has recently reflected, what we were saying is that we have a right as people who are not just female, who are not solely black, who are not just lesbians, who are not just working class or workers, that we are people who embody all of these identities and we have a right to build and define political theory and practice based upon that reality. That's what we meant by identity politics. We didn't mean that if you're not the same as us, you're nothing. We were not saying that we didn't care about anybody who wasn't exactly like us. To what degree were identity politics meant to be inclusive and to what degree are today's identity politics, in your opinion, exclusive? Well, it's hard to get any clearer than Barbara Smith was there in that interview. Uh, what, what she's pointing to is the fact that her organization at the beginning was founded by people who had participated uh, in a number of coalitions and a number of different left organizations. Uh, and they came out of that with the understanding that particular kinds of reductive understandings of identity had severely limited the emancipatory potential of those movements. So a feminist movement which conceives of all women as being white, uh, uh, a black liberation movement which, con- which conceives of all black people as being men, these were very limiting kinds of identities. And of course, <clears throat> the, the classical example being a labor movement which conceives of all workers as being white men. Uh, so these reductive identities uh, prevented these movements from really achieving the goals of emancipation that they had set out. And so... The idea of identity politics, as they had originally conceived of it, was that their specific identity as black women was the one that was excluded from these hegemonic identities. And so by asserting their right to organize autonomously, to have their own agency, uh, they were breaking that kind of structure of exclusion. And they were bringing out the possibility of undermining all the existing structures of oppression, which is why they say in that statement if black women become free, then everyone becomes free, because that means undermining the very structure that lies at the core of everyone's oppression. This, by the way, I just want to say your book was fascinating because this has been a topic that we've been talking about a lot on the show. And you quote Demita Frazier recalling the emphasis the Combahee organization placed on coalitions, saying, I never believe that Combahee or other black feminist groups I've participated in should focus only on issues of concern for us as black women or that as lesbian, bisexual women. We should only focus on lesbian issues. Uh, it's really important to note that uh, Combahee was uh, instrumental in founding a local battered women's shelter 
Metro, we worked in coalition with community activists, women and men, lesbians and straight folks. We were very active in the reproductive rights movement, even though at the time most of us were lesbians. We found ourselves in, involved in coalition with the labor movement because we believed in the importance of supporting other groups. Even if the individuals in that group weren't all feminist, we understood that coalition building was crucial to our own survival. Why do we have the sense then that identity politics today is exclusive, working within a vacuum outside of any politics other than those that affect and are are about their identity first and foremost? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. One is simply the fact that uh, social movements have been fragmented and uh, largely defeated since the uh, late 70s um, uh, in most of the uh, advanced capitalist world. And that's something that has to do with the restructuring of capitalism that came with neoliberalism. It has to do with what Stuart Hall called the authoritarian populism of uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And uh, we don't have a base of mass movements that sort of train people in the practice of coalition. And um, one thing to note is that coalitions uh, show you that identities are not fixed things, that you can't reduce people to their identities, and you can't reduce uh, politics to anybody's identity. In fact, uh, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, who is well known for introducing the term intersectionality, she points out in one of the articles uh, that uh, elaborates on the term that even just what we consider to be a unitary identity group is in itself already a coalition is already composed of all kinds of people who are uh, defined and determined by a multiplicity of traits, even if you've just defined them according to one trait. Uh, and so right now, since we're, 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 we've lost an anchor in mass movements, we've lost the idea that politics uh, should be driven from below rather than just being a contestation between two different leaders of an elite uh, mainstream political party. We've lost that idea. And we've, we've come to rely on very reductive understandings of our identities because that's become the way that we gain access to our politics. That's the, by, by asserting our particular identities and claiming to be injured on the basis of our identities, we can demand protection or recognition from the state. And that's what our politics has been reduced to when we, when we lose that connection to mass movement. So how much then do identity politics limit our identity? And are we doing that to ourselves simply because that, as you were just saying, is the only way that we can have an impact on the political system as it stands right now? Well, uh, I think that um, the sort of reductive understanding of identity that is very prevalent now, which, um, uh, which, which reduces politics to just an expression of who you are, and who you are can be determined in many different ways. And even if you have an intersectional understanding of who you are, the idea that that somehow determines uh, the way that you think politically or the way that you act politically is a highly misleading way of understanding politics. Because we know that uh, many people who come from marginalized identities can be absorbed into the existing power structure and can... uh, engage in the kind of political practice, the kind of policymaking that's highly destructive to uh, the communities that they are either coming out of or now claiming to represent. Um, uh, There are are many examples of this, and we we just had uh, eight years of an example with Barack Obama. Uh, Why is it that the Black Lives Matter movement had to arise under 
the uh, uh, regime of the first, first black president. Um, that's an indication that the identity of an individual politician doesn't lead to structural political change. Uh, even if you know this was a this was an uh, it was a major turning point, uh, but the fact that uh, it came to be seen as a substitute for mass movements is why Black Lives Matter had to happen. Something had to happen from below to actually challenge the persistence of racism that um, so many people uh, had assumed was uh, adequately challenged by the election of a black politician. How much then is the Black Lives Matter reclaiming the Combahee uh, River Collective's uh, meaning, the original meaning of identity politics as a collectivist response to the po- the problems of capitalism that we have today? I think that it, it was a movement with uh, many different tendencies, and um, it has gone through particular a, a particular kind of evolution and has faced um, the challenges that social movements face in the United States. Um, I think uh, that there was, uh, in, in, in a strong sense, a return to the kind of um, mass-based coalitional practice of the Combi River Collective. Um, I don't know what direction that's taking now and what direction it will take in the future. Um, and it's just as before in the Black Freedom Movement, there were many different tendencies, and some led in a in that kind of coalitional, emancipatory, mass organizing direction, and others led in an elite leadership kind of direction that often rationalized itself with ideologies of racial unity, the reductive, essentialist kinds of understandings of identity, and those exist now too. And so in any social movement, you see contradictions and antagonisms uh, and uh, it's important uh, to um, it's important to recognize those, I think. And we'll get back to that idea of the black misleadership class, as uh, Black Agenda Reports, uh, uh, Glenn Ford calls it. But uh, you write uh, for the uh, Combahee River Collective, feminist political practice meant, for example, walking picket lines during strikes in the uh, building trades during the 1970s. But the history that followed seemed to turn the whole thing upside down. Then you quote historian Salar Mahandesi explaining what began as a promise to push beyond some of socialism's limitations to build a richer, more diverse and inclusive socialist uh, politics ended up exploited by those with politics diametrically opposed to those of the CRC. What were the politics of those who co-opted the CRC and the CRC's call for a more inclusive socialist politics and turned it into a more exclusive identity politics? Who co-opted those identity politics? Well, I mean, the the history that takes us through the 80s and 90s uh, in terms of the use of the word, of these words, identity politics, is a really complicated one, which is going to take another book to explain. Um but uh, what we can, I think that the term saw a real mainstream resurgence uh, with the 2016 primaries, and that's I sort of make a jump, um, a historical jump, in order to show the instability of the term. That is that it was introduced uh, as a kind of um, uh, emancipatory radical term, and recently, with the, a lot of the discourse around the Hillary Clinton campaign and the opposition to the Bernie Sanders campaign, it, it was used as a way specifically to undermine any challenge to the hegemonic ideas of the, of the mainstream of the Democratic Party. 
Uh, and in this context, it became totally uprooted from its origins. And um, I think there are basically we could identify two different ways that people meant uh, the word uh, or the term. Uh, one would be that it's just anything that has to do with race and gender, which is either seen in opposition to class or seen as something that has to be added to class or something of that kind. And then the other was the one that we've already been discussing, which is that your politics sort of uh, emerges from the foundation of your identity. And, you know, every time the term was used in the mainstream media, in uh, think pieces and so on, it seemed to take on a different meaning, sometimes different meanings within the same article. Um, but neither of these meanings obviously uh, was was uh, resonant with the very specific kind of meaning that the Combee River Collective had. So I think that the way that it's become a kind of floating term now uh, is, has has allowed it to be used in a kind of weaponized way in order to attack political adversaries. And the fact that Hillary Clinton represented uh, a continuation of the kind of neoliberal and militarist legacy of not just the Obama years, but also the preceding Bush years and the, the Bill Clinton years, years before that, uh, that became uh, suppressed, that was hidden underneath uh, the discourse of identity politics and the, and the equation of identity politics with some kind of civil rights agenda. And so the 2016 primaries were, were in, in many respects, a turning point in that uh, a politics that had to do with um, opposing racism and sexism became uh, separated and even turned into an opposition to a politics that was about overcoming economic inequality. And that's not how it was conceived before. Did the Hillary Clinton campaign then weaponize identity politics? Well, I mean, Hillary Clinton uh, made these tweets about privilege, used the word intersectionality. Uh, so there was, a, there was some direct appropriation. Uh, her communications director, who I quote in the book, said on, uh, and I think on MSNBC, it's all about identity on our side now. Uh, and I think a lot of pundits, a lot of people in the mainstream media um, uh, really adopted that language, often explicitly t using the term identity politics um, as a way to say that, you know, um, I think I'm far to the left of Bernie Sanders, but one of the significant things about the Sanders campaign was that it presented a challenge to the existing political discourse in this country. It, it, it introduced a lot of young people to the word socialism. It introduced the idea that you could have a, uh, a political agenda that was not simply reduced to reshuffling the existing economic and political elites. Um, and that was something that um, the, the Hillary Clinton campaign and the liberal uh, intellectuals and intelligentsia were trying very hard to suppress. So how much does the identity politics, as defined by the uh, Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, how much does it support or uh, endorse the uh, idea of the elite? How much does it help? Uh, how much does it feed into the idea of an elite? Well, uh, uh, it's absolutely a kind of politics which is which revolves around individuals, and uh, the uh, identity politics is understood to be um, uh, an expression of the rights 
of an individual according to their particular identity. And that means that um, achieving, as I was saying about Obama, and the, the, the same holds true of Clinton, uh, achieving uh, any kind of victory against racism or sexism means diversifying uh, the ruling elite. And um, that doesn't do anything uh, for the mass of working people who belong to one of these particular identities, however they're conceived. I mean, um, the kinds of programs that, uh, that, that are required for overcoming racism and sexism are programs of structural change, and they're programs that will involve also economic change, though they're certainly not restricted to it. Uh, but they, they, none of that change can be achieved by, uh, uh, by diversifying the ruling elite. The ruling elite itself has to be challenged. How much does uh, identity politics fail to address institutionalized racism? Well, um, it, it's a significant. Um, it, there's first of all this factor of the individualization that I was just talking about. Right. Second, there's um, a sense in which understanding race in identity terms reproduces the kinds of ideological categories that are created by racism. And uh, what we have to understand is that racism. Uh, is that race is socially constructed, and it's constructed by racism. It's a central part of American history, uh, which I go into in my book. Um, it comes out of the uh, uh, sort of complicated transformations in migrant forced labor in uh, all the way back to the 7th, 17th century in colonial Virginia, the formation of racial slavery, uh, the, the the changing in categories of indentured servitude, that's the that's the, the kind of um, history that categories of race come out of. And if we understand race as just an attribute of a person, something that we can just see based on the color of skin or something or, or, or other physical characteristics, we we're we're reproducing the racist discourse that was invented to, ra to rationalize uh, racial oppression. Uh, we're reproducing the kind of pseudoscience that European colonialists were using to justify their domination of the non-Western world. Um, and so one of, the, one of the things that we really need to do in order to oppose racism is break out of this kind of racial ideology and understand how race is historically socially constructed. Is the way identity politics are applied today and applied during the Hillary Clinton campaign a way in which class issues can be erased and dismiss critiques of neoliberal globalized capitalism? Yes, but I think also, you know, uh, I think that identity now, I think that the way that the Columbia River Collective talked about identity politics was, some, was a specific intervention into a specific uh, situation that they encountered in mass movements and political practice. I think that identity as a general category to explain race and gender is not adequate. These are really specific social relations with really specific histories, and you have to look at them in their specificity and not subsume them into some general thing called identity. And uh, to just have a kind of list of race, gender, and class 
as though these were all different, you know, um, parallel or intersecting lines. That doesn't adequately understand um, how any of them operate and how they are articulated together into one society, how they're connected into one social structure. Uh, so th that kind of way of, uh, you know, reifying these categories, of, of, of turning them into kind of empty abstractions, uh, that's how this opposition gets created between race and gender on the one hand and class on the other, or turning class into an identity in itself. N none of these things should be understood that way. Uh, we, what we actually have to do is look at the society as it, as it exists and look at the relations that constitute it and look at the, 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 the ways that they come together into one social structure, and then we'll find that it's never in isolation. You never have racism in, in isolation from economic exploitation and inequality. You never have racism in opposition from particular uh, patriarchal understandings of the family, for example. Um, these things are part of one process, one historical process and one social structure. And so by turning them into empty abstractions, it then becomes possible to pit them against class. But uh, that doesn't explain any of these things, and it doesn't help us to tackle any of these uh, problems. We are speaking with Assad Haider. He is author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. You can go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on the title of the book, and it takes you directly to the publisher's website where you can purchase the book. You write as the historian Jacqueline Dowd Hall elaborates in her analysis of the long civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. has been rendered an empty symbol, frozen in 1963. Through selective quotation, Hall observes the uplifting rhetoric of his speeches have been stripped of its content, his opposition to the Vietnam War through an analysis linking segregation to imperialism, his democratic socialist commitment to unionization, his orchestration of the Poor People's Campaign, and his support for a sanitation worker strike when he was assassinated in Memphis. How does this stripping of the content of King's speeches and writing undermine the more inclusive identity politics of, say, the Black Panthers, who at the time, according to Black Panther leader Kathleen Cleaver, you, you quote writing, we organized the Rainbow Co Coalition, pulled together our allies, including not only the Puerto Rican Young Lords, the youth gang called Black Pea Stone Rangers, the Chicano Brown Berets, and the Asian Red Guards, but also the predominantly White Peace and Freedom Party and the Appalachian Young Patriots Party. We pose not only a theoretical but a practical challenge to the way our world was organized, and we were men and working men and women working together. How does the stripping of content from King's words undermine the idea of identi identity politics that offer a collective response? Well, one thing that shows you is that really across the spectrum. I mean, you named um, uh, two different. Uh, uh, you, you, you named on the one hand Martin Luther King, who's associated with the classical civil civil rights movement and then the Black Panthers who are associated with Black power, and they're usually put in opposition. And, you know, in, 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 to, to a large extent, they were in opposition over tactics and strategy, over the question of violence and so on. But one thing that they, were, that they really had in common was the understanding of the Black Freedom Movement of the United States as part of a global movement against colonialism and capitalism. And... Uh, the, they, what they shared fundamentally was an understanding that uh, the movement in, against racism in the United States also had to be a movement against economic exploitation. It had to be a socialist movement. 
both uh, Martin Luther King and the Black Panther Party use this word explicitly. Now, the fact that um, these figures are invoked today uh, is representing, uh, and, and, and both of them are. I mean, you, you find uh, references to Martin Luther King have become mainstream, of course. Uh, Martin Luther King Day was signed into law by Ronald Reagan. Um, and uh, the, the Black Panthers were often referred to um, even by uh, the kind of more elite, neoliberally oriented um, kinds of opportunistic uh, people who, who, who took up Black Lives Matter uh, as a way to um, uh, launch a kind of uh, personal political career. Uh, the fact that these people talked that these that King and the Black Panthers talked about socialism gets completely erased, and uh, that's a very I think you know you can see uh, in some cases that's a very deliberate strategy, but it has a very powerful effect on people who um, have not had access to this kind of information. Um, obviously, this is, not, this is not what gets taught in schools. We don't get taught that uh, Martin Luther King um, was talking about democratic socialism, was calling for uh, a general strike for in, in support of the sanitation workers in Atlanta um, just before he died, that he supported the Vietnamese struggle for self-determination. We don't uh, get a history of the Black Panther Party that tells us about how they raise money by selling copies of the Little Red Book, uh, about how they conceived of the Free Breakfast for Children program as a specific as a program of socialist political education. Um, these are things that we need to learn and we need to revive that tradition. We need to disseminate that information because it's very valuable, because it tells us about what the struggle against racism in the United States actually was and what it has to continue to be. You write organizations like the NAACP, led by the elites of the black community, had tried to distance themselves from the revolutionary possibilities of the struggle, shifting funding and resources away from economic issues and toward the battle against Southern legal segregation. As time went on, this became a significant limit on the scope of mass mobilization. To what degree is that shift away from economic issues, the end of the mass movement that started by that was started by the civil rights movement in the 1950s that had major successes with the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, did that shift away from economic issues end the mass movement as well as the more collective and cross-cultural state of identity politics? Well, after 65, everybody was thinking, you know, in the civil rights movement, we have to, we have to shift economic issues now because uh, we've achieved these uh, uh, formal legal victories against segregation, but segregation and racism continue to exist because of the economic structures of the society, because of the, the de facto segregation in the cities, because of um, the leadership structures, because of of the sheer fact of poverty, um, and that's what you know Martin Luther King was totally preoccupied with in in those uh, last three years, um, and that's also uh, what started to become apparent with the emergence of uh, the urban rebellions, the riots in the, the inner cities of the North, um, and the uh, rise of organizations like the Black Panthers and, and others that were taking up the slogans of black power. Um, but at that point, um, 
the, the, the politics becomes complicated because um, having a movement against economic exploitation uh, when these victories had been achieved at the formal legal level uh, was a complicated prospect. They had spent o- over a decade building, b- building a movement against segregation in the South and all of a sudden needed a new strategy, needed a new language. And that's what King was working on and, you know, often butting heads with his associates in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the um, other organizations, the Black Power organizations, uh, were facing extreme state repression and some of the uh, limits of trying to take up a strategy of violent revolution that had worked in China and Cuba and so on and applying it to the very different context of the United States. Um, and one thing that happened, that comes out of that is that black nationalism uh, sort of becomes an ambiguous political force. On the one hand, it's working to create uh, institutions that are not just uh, trying to integrate into the white society, but um, trying to uh, provide a parallel structure for people who, had, for black people who had been excluded. Um, and for a certain period, that is something that unites um, the uh, more elite members of the black community with the mass of the black community. But slowly there's, as, as a kind of integration of society takes place, uh, especially at the elite level, as black mayors are elected, as black businessmen begin to rise, there, these interests are no longer in alignment. And so what you find in uh, the 70s is uh, that as neoliberal restructuring is happening, many black politicians are the ones who are imposing austerity on their own constituencies. And the idea of racial unity that came out of black nationalism is now, in this context, a kind of obstacle to seeing that antagonism. Uh, And so this is something that uh, many participants in the uh, black nationalist movements recognize. For example, Amiri Baraka, who I go into in the book, uh, he faced this situation specifically in Newark. And that's what caused him to make this conversion from black nationalism, from cultural nationalism specifically, to uh, Marxism in uh, the early 70s. You write on the uh, on this lack of liberation and just replacing a black white cop with a black cop, which I found you write how uh, you're setting up a situation in which the white cop would be replaced by a black cop. For the Black Panthers, this was not liberation. On this lack of liberation, just replacing a white cop with a black cop, you write... That was clearly the situation we were getting into in the United States. As optimistic liberals celebrated the replacement of mass movements, riots, and armed calls with a placid multiculturalism, over the course of several decades, the legacy of anti-racist movements was channeled toward the economic and political advancement of individuals like Barack Obama and Bill Cosby, who would go on to lead the attack against social movements and marginalized communities. How did Barack Obama lead an attack against social movements and marginalized communities? Well, you know, Bill Cosby actually came first uh, with uh, what was known as the pound cake speech, you know, going around uh, speaking uh, speaking to black communities in various places and talking about how the responsibility for um, the uh, the inequality, the racial inequalities that exist in American society lay with the culture of black communities. And, you know, he, it's the kind of things that, you know, pull your pants up, etc. 
And Obama did that himself with what was called the, the Popeye speech, in which he said, you know, you, he, speaking to a black audience, said you can't be feeding your children uh, cold Popeyes for breakfast. Well, uh, in both cases, uh, that's, um, that's the kind of um, colonial men- mentality, which says that the people who have been exploited and subjugated uh, for so long are themselves responsible for their position because of the inadequacy of their own uh, culture and practices. And uh, that's, I mean, that just sort of is an illustration of how the uh, rise of an individual black politician um, doesn't lead to the overcoming of the structures of racism in a very direct way in the sense that he himself went out and you adopted this racist rhetoric, uh, and um, he should be held responsible for that. You write, quote, in an analysis of the murder of Freddie Gray and the ensuing uprising in Baltimore, uh, past guest on our show, uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor, writing in her writes in her book from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Actually, she argues we have broken in a fundamental way from the context that produced the classical vo- vocabulary of the anti-racist struggle. Then you quote her writing, there have always been class differences among African-Americans, but this is the first time those class differences have been expressed in the form of a minority of blacks wielding significant political power and authority over the majority of black lives. This raises critical questions about the role of the black elite in the continuing freedom struggle and about what side are they on. This is not an overstatement. When a black mayor governing a largely black city aids in the mobilization of a military unit led by a black woman to suppress a black rebellion. We're in a new period of the black freedom struggle. How much does the reaction by the city of Baltimore to the shooting of Freddie Gray reveal either the failings of today's uh, revealed actually the failings of today's uh, identity politics? Well, um, I think what it reveals is that there has not been an adequate challenge to the structures of governance and the economic structures that are keeping these um, racist practices in place. Um, the the fact that uh, you have black leadership, we we as a, as as, a, as we've been discussing, um, doesn't change the way that uh, that um, the lives of black people uh, uh, at a mass level are still fundamentally affected by the structures of racism, and that without a challenge to the um, authoritarianism of this society, the the militarization of this society, and to the extreme economic polarization in this society, uh, it will be impossible for people to achieve any kind of social change. Uh, I I mean, I think that's something that, uh, you know, we can debate all day back and forth about identity politics, about race and gender, and so on. But the thing is, any social movement is going to ultimately have to confront the state. It's ultimately going to have to confront the uh, the way that our society is structured so that a minority can rule and keep things the way they are. If you want to challenge the status quo, you have to challenge that. And to, to turn that into some kind of opposition, an opposition between race and class or something like that, is fundamentally disabling and um, uh, self-defeating. 
so if you want to have an anti-racist movement, it has to involve a class struggle against the people who are, uh, who whatever their identity, who are part of the ruling structures and who are preventing social change from happening. You quote the author and black liberation supporter James Boggs, uh, husband of uh, the late, great Grace Lee Boggs, reflecting in 1993, shortly before his death, before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we may have had the money, but we couldn't go into most hotels to buy a home outside of the ghetto. Today, the only reason why we can't go to a hotel or buy a decent home is because we don't have the money. But we are still focused on the question of race, and it is paralyzing us. What were or are the questions of race that you believe are paralyzing any black black liberation movement to this day? Well, I think it's precisely the way that it turned into an opposition. You know, because uh, Boggs was pointing out that um, th- that it's not as though Boggs was just saying, now it's just about economics. Now our our situation is, meaning the situation of black people in his context in Detroit, um, that that situation is just the same uh, as that of poor white people. Um, It's pointing out that racism is now expressed through this economic inequality in in the way that before it was expressed through laws and um, uh, formal uh, exclusion. And so now that exclusion is taking the form of economic inequality. And there is a racial disparity in wealth in this country. That's fundamentally the case, and, it can, and you know that that uh, uh, has to be a central um, uh, uh, that has to be centrally targeted by any social movement that wants to change the way that this country works. You know, uh, and, uh, a, a labor movement, a socialist movement um, that is worthy of the name is going to take that kind of racial disparity into account and is going to put it front and center. Uh, but also a movement against racism that wants, to target against, that wants to target that racial disparity has to understand that if it's economically expressed, that also requires a movement that uh, is operating at the level of class. They cannot be separated. And that's, that's what um, uh, the... the that's the kind of paralyzing way of talking about race when it's turned into something that's separate from class and separate from economic structure. You write by coding demands that come from marginal or subordinate groups as identity politics. The white male identity is enshrined with the status of the neutral, general, and universal. We know that this is false. In fact, there is a white identity politics, a white nationalism. And as we shall see, whiteness is the prototypical form of racial ideology itself. Anti-racist struggles like those of the Combahee River Collective reveal the false universality of the hegemonic identity. To what extent do today's identity politics, even unintentionally, reinforce white supremacy? Well, um, I think, uh, first of all, it's it's, um, extremely illuminating to understand uh, whiteness as one of the primary forms of race, because that shows you exactly how um, how constructed these categories are, just how much they are not part of the uh, expression of some individual's characteristics. Um, 
all these different groups that in Europe were part of racial hierarchies, like the English and the Irish, or Germans and Poles, uh, migrated to the United States, and over a long process, all became integrated into one entity called the white race. Uh, that's what Theodore Allen called the invention of the white race, and that's something that I uh, uh, quote in my book. Uh, that shows exactly how delusional the white supremacists and the alt-right are today when they talk about this category of whiteness. They're talking about a fictive construction, okay? uh, one that is real in the sense that it has real social effects, but has no basis in human physiology or even culture, okay? Um, and so I think that uh, often there's a tendency to simply take what the right says and invert it and uh, just accept the basic categories. So to respond to uh, what the alt-right is saying by uh, taking the category of white people and whiteness as though they are real things, um, that ends up reinforcing the uh, ideological structure that they're using to um, to put forth a highly misleading uh, rationalization for a very dangerous political agenda. And so, once again, we have to be able to question the racial ideology, these um, empty abstractions of race, uh, and that applies to whiteness first and foremost. And you were talking earlier, and you write about how identity politics leads to a victimhood and re reduces us and reduces people to that victimized belonging. Yet we see claims of being discriminated against and victimhood on the far right. And according to a poll recently done uh, last uh, October, I believe, by NPR, a majority of white Americans feel they are discriminated against. Do whites on the far right who claim victimhood also face the possibility of being defined by its victim victimhood and reduced to that victimized belonging? And if so, what does that mean for the white race? Well, first of all, I'll say on the question of victimhood, when I criticize a uh, political discourse that's based on victimhood, this is not like the conservative kind of uh, grandfatherly thing like, you know, don't, don't see yourself as a victim or stop whining, etc., no, this is from a very different perspective. This perspective is that if we understand ourselves politically as victims, that means that our politics is reduced to asking for protection from the state. But if we understand ourselves fundamentally as engaged in, uh, in as political agents who are capable of engaging in resistance, that's a very different kind of politics. That's the kind of politics that can actually lead to emancipation, that can actually lead to changing society. Uh, claiming victimhood and asking for protection will not change the existing structure of society. Um, <clears throat> now, of course, when, when the alt-right and uh, various kinds of white supremacists we have today uh, claim the status of victimhood, they are being cynical. Uh, when when I, I don't know who exactly was uh, polled in the, with the numbers you cited, um, but we can presume that a lot of those people are um, are sort of uh, unable to conceive of a way to think about politics outside of asking the state for protection, outside of asking the state for some kind of redress of their grievances. Now, if there are poor white people or 
also middle class white people who have found that their standard of living has declined, they've become more precarious. Um, I think they're often going to uh, reach for that kind of claim that they are victims uh, and they're going to uh, have a distorted understanding that they're the victims of uh, immigrants or black people or gay people or transgender people or whatever other group uh, happens to be uh, targeted in, in the, the media that they're, uh, that they're getting these ideas from. Um, instead of understanding that actually what's happened is a, an, an objective political historical process in which um, the, the uh, ruling elite has changed their conditions of life. Um, and so, you know, with, in, with the alt-right, uh, they're using it cynically, uh, they should be destroyed. Uh, with m more mainstream people who are confused, they need to be re-educated and they need to understand uh, that, uh, th that anti-racism is in their interest. And that's something that a lot of that a lot of today's identity politics won't accept because it's fundamentally lodged in a moralizing kind of discourse. The thing is that the vast majority of white people, whether they voted for Trump, whatever, they need to be re-educated. Uh, they can't just be. It, 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 it may feel satisfying just to condemn them, but if we actually want to overcome racism, we have to deal with the fact that a huge proportion of this society. Uh, is constantly reproducing white supremacy, even sometimes on an unconscious level, and they need to be re-educated into opposing racism. And they also need to be recruited into an anti-capitalist program, and that's, that's ultimately going to have to be the same thing. We have been speaking with Assad Haider. He is author of Mistaken Identity, Race, and Class in the Age of Trump. Assad is a founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine, an investigative journal of contemporary politics, and you should definitely find it online, Viewpoint Magazine. It's a fantastic publication. One last question for you, Assad, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Is it possible to be a critic of identity politics and not be supporting racism or sexism? Because past guests who have been critical of identity politics have been either labeled as racist or sexist or not realizing how much racism and sexism are still prevalent today. So can you both be a critic of identity politics and not be racist or sexist? It depends because it depends on how you understand the term. And, you know, some people ask me, well, why, do you why did you frame your argument as a critique of identity politics instead of reclaiming its radical potential? And, you know, that's the particular uh, strategic decision that I made, a particular critical uh, decision that I made, because I think that now the term has become so unstable that we can't just reassert its origin. Uh, I think... I want to bring attention to its origins to show people that a different kind of politics was possible and that there was a very uh, valuable revolutionary kind of contribution to American politics that was made by the people who put forth this term. Uh, the way that it's used now is not anchored in that original usage. And there's something here that's happening now that we have to criticize. And uh, if we're going to criticize that, I believe, and uh, I think this is fundamental. 
it must be done from a perspective that is anti-racist and feminist. And it must be done from the perspective of saying, what is the most useful way of thinking and the most useful way of acting that can oppose racism and sexism? And is identity politics in the, in the way that it currently exists, in the way that uh, people use these terms, is that actually useful for those goals? And uh, I think that in terms of its current usage, it is not. And that's why I choose to criticize it. If someone criticizes it because they think that uh, at some abstract level, class matters more than race, or that um, we have to uh, prioritize sameness over difference or something like that, then I think it's, there, there's a strong likelihood that the critique will be, will be racist and sexist. Uh, but I think if the critique starts from the point uh, from the perspective that we need an adequate language for opposing racism and sexism, is this an adequate language? Then that can be a constructive and valuable critique, which I hope I have aspired to do. Our guest has been Assad Hyder. He is author of Mistaken Identity: Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Thank you so much for being on. This is Hell this week, Assad. Thanks for having me. That was Assad Hyder talking with Chuck in June of this year. And the next one we're going to listen to is C. Riley Snorton from July. Blackness and transness have a lot more in common than you likely think. Here to tell us how they are connected and what that reveals about both, C. Riley Snorton is author of the award-winning book, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. Welcome to This Is Hell, Riley. Thanks so much, Chuck. It's great to be uh, in conversation with you and and on the program. We want to thank both Madeline and Jack for suggesting Madeline or for suggesting Riley as a guest on this week's show. Uh, for suggesting Riley, Madeline and Jack will both be receiving this is hell advertising stickers. You can find Riley on Twitter at c Riley Snorton. You write about Tamara uh, Dominguez, died on uh, Monday, August 17th, 2015, in a Missouri hospital after sustaining injuries from being struck repeatedly with a sports utility vehicle in a church parking lot in northeast Kansas City. Her unidentified boyfriend told the Kansas City Star she had been living as a woman in the United States for at least seven years after leaving her native Mexico to escape discrimination for being transgender. She had a lot of dreams. You add how the boyfriend is invoking a familiar mythology of the hopes, dreams, and promises of different ex- experiential modes of freedom possible in the United States. The framing of her death in such terms underscores the failed promise of the nation's state. Is exclusion of any sector of the population from the rights and privileges guaranteed by the state, a failure of the state. Should we be viewing this as a failure of the state, not as a failure when you see an act of racism occur in public, not as uh, an act that is an individual act by that person, but a failed act by the system of the entire state? Well, I'd say that uh, when I uh, suggest that, you know, the language of promise that Tamara uh, came to the United States to um, to experience uh, was, in fact, the very, um, uh, you know, it, it, it masked the very conditions that the U.S. as a nation state um, is founded on, right? That, like, part of what I, I'm getting at is that the U.S. is uh, a nation state and not in an exceptional way, but in a very 
particular and violent way that I trace across the book um, is a nation state that is premised upon exclusion of, of, of folks like Tamara. Um, and so, you know, even as we have a, a kind of rich rhetorical um, repertoire of language of freedom and rights and inclusion, um, this nation has also, and we have only seen it function by way of excluding particular groups from what it means to uh, uh, participate in the kind of project of U.S. citizenship. How dependent do you think our economic system is? How dependent do you think our our government is on that kind of exclusion? Well, I mean, if you're talking about the kind of contemporary moment, um, certainly uh, we're in a, a, a moment in capitalism in which uh, it is about a kind of uh, a massive dispossession of of human beings. Uh, you know, capitalism, uh, late capitalism, whether people call it neoliberalism or, or simply late capitalism, post-industrial late capitalism, all of these terms swirl around the idea that uh, to, to think about the kind of accumulation of wealth is to also give license to uh, a kind of uh, understanding of people as disposable, um, and so if we think of, so, if we think about the kind of economic structures that are in place that gave rise to certain kinds of resistance movements, most recently um, and spectacularly in um, 99% uh, movement, but we can also look, of course, across uh, history and and into the in in our our very present day to think about the kinds of uh, attacks on workers, uh, the, the kind of rise of, uh, of animation as the kind of, quote-unquote, good sense of what it means to... Uh, uh, good sense in, in the kind of logic of capitalism. Um, but there have been so many um, important works, I'm thinking, about the uh, the work that people have done on on uh, looking at the kind of global system of capitalism as already being entrenched in so many other modes of of this of of wealth accumulation based on human dispossession. Of course, the transatlantic slave trade being one of them. Um, and then we, and then when we talk about the kind of governmental picture, uh, I was struck by the um, the teaser that you gave about the recent, um, I, I'm not sure if it's passed or if it's just introduced anti-prostitution law in Chicago. Uh, but, I mean, I think we're also uh, trying to think about what forms of regulation and policy uh, are, are are being posited as something for the public good um, in a moment where there's a, a great deal of confusion, I would say productive and generative confusion about who is a person and who's a corporation. That is, there's so much in there. That was, that's like one of the best answers I've had to a question in a really long time. Thank you, Riley. Uh, so, uh, but this kind of gender variant exclusion, this isn't yeah. anything new. So is this trans cultural and societal exclusion finally being recognized, finally being reported, or is it that trans people are finally being recognized as trans people? 
Yeah, that's a really um, fascinating question. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that, that we we would need to, to just uh, put on the table is uh, that, you know, we could say at least um, in, from the mid-1960s on, um, there's been some sense that trans people exist, right, in the kind of fabric of uh, neighborhoods and communities, uh, the kind of visibility of trans women in uh, the larger lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender movement um, is something that I don't think uh, it can be uh, denied or, 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 or effectively erased. And I'm, you know, specifically thinking about uh, figures like Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, uh, Sir Lady Java, folks who were very, uh, and, and, and also including, I'd be remiss not to, to name a living, um, a, a living icon of Miss Major. Um, and so, you know, when we think about uh, a kind of uh, shorthanded as, quote, gay rights movement, um, that that often has, has been um, one in which uh, particularly trans women of color have been at the forefront of making uh, certain kinds of political demands. Um, but I think we're also living in a time in which, and, you know, the beginning in the uh, early mid-90s with the kind of uh, ritual uh, that has been uh, sometimes called Transgender Day of Remembrance, sometimes called Transgender Day of Resilience, um, that uh, that there is also a sense of what social media and and mass media uh, uh, has has uh, done is made visible the the ways that uh, trans people of color, particularly black and brown trans women, um, have been uh, subjected to uh, violence, a kind of violence uh, that um, has has resulted in numerous murders. Um, but I think part of what uh, I, I'm addressing in the preface of the book is that, yes, we live in a, in a landscape in which it's quite clear that um, trans women of color are incredibly vulnerable to, um, the mechani to mechanisms of premature death, in which murder is not the only scale for which, in which we can think through how violence shaped black and brown trans people's lives. Uh, and so part of the project uh, in a kind of larger sense is to, to talk about what I think is a, um, a very complicated moment, a moment in which there are uh, figures who have uh, notoriety, celebrity, uh, we also, uh, you know, are more and more aware of those who have been um, uh, victims of, of violence. Uh, but I think there's also a kind of uh, another picture uh, that we need to think about, which is kind of what I what what we might think of as the kind of mundane textures of violence that shape uh, black and brown trans folks' lives. Um, by which I mean. Um, the, the, I, you know, I immediately am thinking about that, 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 uh, ordinance in Chicago 
as having a, a particular impact on trans women of color uh, who, because of, of modes of, of system, systematic discrimination, um, are often um, making use of sex work as a way to uh, support themselves in, 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 ways, in, in, the, in the ways that are available to them in a structure in which uh, underemployment is also an incredible issue, a kind of persistent characteristic of the, the, of the way discrimination works in, in this country. And you write extensively about the historic erasure of transness uh, that, from our history. Um, so what would you say to somebody, just, I know this is kind of a devil's advocate question, but you know, uh, trans people have been very, very fortunate in finding a community on social media. So they don't feel as isolated within their small community. They finally found a larger community within social, within social media. And therefore, uh, you know, they've been able to express that transness more and more. What would you say to somebody who believes that transness is something that is new, that is an invention of the last maybe few decades or last generation? What do they miss in understanding transness? And how do you think that idea that transness is something new might affect the way that they perceive transness? Right. So um, there, I'll, I'll take the second part, but I also want to kind of loop back into um, uh, how the question began. Um, so in terms of, of the question of transness is new, I, mean, I think that uh, one of the things that I flag in, in the book is just how often that becomes the uh, narrative in excuse me, in reporting on trans people. Uh, So if we, you know, often Christine Jorgensen, who, uh, you know, in 1952 makes an international media splash uh, because she has uh, surgery um, to uh, confirm her gender identity. uh, And, you know, like the, the news often took her to be the first case. In fact, that wasn't even the first case of uh, a, a kind of trans person living in the 20th century. Um, and, it, and there were all of these sporadic stories that I found in the archives where people were talking about these kind of sporadic blips of media attention. Um, and, and so, you know, in, in one way, uh, and this is not to, to lay all the blame on the media, but I think that there is often a kind of uh, in trying to report stories about trans people in order to make it quote unquote newsworthy, it's often framed as look at this new phenomena. I mean, it, it gets declared as new re- repeatedly over the last uh, 60, 70 years. Um, but I think that there's a, a kind of more substantial um, uh, problem to thinking about transness as new, which is it uh, has to. Fu- to, to have that kind of assessment is to also uh, not fully have a definition of what it is to be trans. Um, and so, you know, often people imagine, um, as Christine Jorgensen's story uh, bears out, that in order to live a trans life, one must uh, make certain kinds of medical arrangements. 
But there are all kinds of ways that people live trans lives. Um, and that was something that I really attended to in the third chapter with a whole b- bunch of folks who um, often, by reason of being working class and poor and Black, were, even if they wanted to medically transition, um, they were disallowed from doing that. Um, I'd also say, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, that we're talking a little bit about social media and about the communities that are being formed in social media. I think there's such an important function in terms of uh, what it means to have, uh, 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 I guess, for lack of a better way of talking about it, I guess, internal communities, ones in which lots of learning um, can and does occur where people feel uh, less isolated if they live in communities in which they don't seem to, to uh, have any other trans people living um, in their uh, environment, in their kind of neighborhoods or in their local environment. But I also think that, you know, and this is something that I've pursued across my work, uh, that there are also a, a number of thorny issues when we get to the question of visibility. You know, visibility is not the antidote to, uh, to, to violence. In fact, in some ways, visibility can become um, the very, uh, one, of the, one of the very techniques in which violence becomes more ratcheted up for, for various communities. We are speaking with C. Riley Snorton, author of the award-winning book, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. You can find Riley on Twitter at C. Riley Snorton, you mentioned an Advocate.com article headlined Victim Number 17, Trans Woman of Color Murdered in Missouri. And you write that the recurrent practice of enumerating the dead and mass in social media uh, seems to conform to the logics of accumulation that structure racial capitalism in which the quantified abstraction of black and trans deaths reveals the calculated value of black and trans lives through states' grammars of deficit and debt. Then you quote gender studies scholar Catherine McKittick uh, explaining about the long durée of slavery. This is where we uh, begin. This is where historic blackness comes from, the list, the breathless numbers, the absolute economic, the mathematics of unliving. Where do you see that mathematics of unliving still being applied today? Yeah, I mean, I think that we are still, uh, you know, in a, a, a mode of uh, accounting for uh, death as a way of trying to um, make, uh, as, a, as one rhetorical uh, tool to make a demand about the urgency of attending to the life chances of Black and trans people. And I, un- I, I know that that has been a technique that people have used. I came out of, of uh, nonprofit and activist work before going into graduate school, and very frequently I would need to sort of cite the statistic as a way of uh, grounding a particular uh, claim for um, a, a kind of different policy in relation to uh, communities of color and, and queer and trans people. But part of what I, I, you know, in in raising that question and inciting Catherine McKittrick's work is I wanted to talk about that kind of the kind of tyranny of numbers, ones in which death 
seem to be um, uh, made into a ledger uh, for a, a set of policies in which it's, it's often unclear if those policies uh, might even touch what it means to have uh, enhanced life chances uh, for black and brown trans people. Um, I think the other piece of it is that, uh, you know, there is, as long as we kind of live in a ratio in which uh, wealth accumulation um, stands above uh, and far outmeasures uh, our understanding of what it means to value um, um, uh, in some ways, I, I, the, the word that comes to mind is, is livability, to value livability, then we will uh, kind of constantly be in a kind of compounding um, structure of uh, dispossession and death. Uh, and so I, you know, wanted to sort of point to what is the underbelly of, uh, of a kind of statistical, a kind of rush to a statistical calculation in order to talk about um, what I think are much more um, intimate material conditions that have to be uh, addressed and also communities uh, that are so deeply shaped by grief uh, that, you know, give rise to uh, a number of, of, of interventions that have been made in relation to the movement for Black Lives, uh, the movement for uh, uh, and in kind of uh, in, in trans uh, liberation struggles as well, which is the practice of saying their names, the practice of being in ritual with each other, um, that that grief doesn't always uh, need to turn into uh, a kind of demand, of, of particularly a demand of the state. You write that uh, a queer politic based on analysis of analyses of power rather than a fraught sense of shared identity. You mentioned that. How do queer politics differ when they are considered through a power analysis rather than a sense of some shared identity? How does that change the way queer politics are viewed and applied? Yeah, so that that, um, that notion is something that uh, I feel deeply grateful to uh, my colleague, Kathy Cohen, um, who you know, writing that in 1997 was pointing to uh, the ways that uh, queer uh, political uh, and social movements uh, were thinking too narrowly about the uh, ways that uh, the government and, uh, and, and society marginalize certain forms of sexuality. So in her argument, she suggests, you know, if we're really going to think about what what distinguishes queer, let's say, from what it means to be gay or lesbian, then we have to think about who is queered by the state. And she um, explicitly draws on the kind of figures of uh, the welfare queen, quote unquote, the kind of, um, um, you know, uh, myth. The, the myth of the welfare queen on the kind of conservative rhetorical device that was used 
to um, to punish um, the uh, 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 black women. And you know, obviously, we know welfare is not uh, 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 is was not ever really in a, in a position of serving black women above and beyond um, other uh, communities in the U.S. But for her, she was suggesting that queer folks needed to get more um, rigorous around who it was that was being marginalized by way of their sexuality, rather than thinking about it as a kind of form of orientation. And I think as we think about kind of trans politics, rather than thinking about it as, well, there's, you know, uh, the language of cisgender or non-trans people and trans people, we could really start to think about what limits people's gender self-determination, how does gender self-determination intersect with so many other forms of uh, of what it means to have uh, a sense of autonomy, uh, of bodily autonomy. Um, so, so, so as a practical example, I think that trans rights movement and um, you know the, the kind of freedom to choose movement or uh, uh, need to be up to some big forms of collaboration. We're talking about bodily autonomy here. I think when we're talking, when, when we're asking questions about um, sex work and uh, and it, how is it, how can it exist? Because we know it exists in ways that actually protect sex workers. That there's absolutely a trans dimension to that. Um, and you know, as the the kind of um, uh, the 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 small, in in some ways, the the kind of media attention. Um, that surrounded uh, Jimset Gutierrez when uh, she protested Obama around uh, not thinking about the trans uh, dimensions of uh, the treatment of folks in detention centers. Or, uh, you know, we can think about uh, what it means that uh, so much activism um, uh, among radical trans folks has has had a lot to do with prison abolition work. So in some ways, um, to kind of get to this idea of what does it mean to like not think in the kind of understanding of uh, us versus them politics or a uh, project uh, that is around the kind of identity itself, but to think about in what ways might groups of people be uh, uh, able to access uh, enhanced uh, livability. by way of uh, forming a coalition that is um, precisely thinking through the logics of power that constrain folks across various orientations uh, and, and, and to think more institutionally and systematically than thinking um, identitarianly. You mentioned Blake Brockington, a black trans man who garnered national attention in 2014 as the first out trans homecoming king in North Carolina. You write how Brockington described the attention he received after his homecoming win as the hardest part of his trans journey. And then you quote Brockington saying, really hateful things were said on the internet. It was hard. I saw how narrow-minded the world really is. Then you quote Brockington elaborating in the short documentary, Brock King Tin, because he was the homecoming king. I've had people call me a tranny, a dyke. I've had people call me he, she, 
it thing. You know, they called me homecoming thing and called me a pervert and an abomination, different things. I've gotten a lot of different things. You add the list of different things echoes what literary critic Hortense Spillers has described as a meeting ground of investments and privations in the national treasury of rhetorical wealth. We have all these kinds of insults within the American lexicon because we are a racist nation, because we have gender variant exclusion. Different countries come up, different languages come up with different words because they need to label that thing within their culture and society. We have all these words because we are a society that is unfortunately too often driven by hate. How much does language in the U.S. reveal anti-black, anti-trans bias? How much does our language reveal our bias and our hate to others? No, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, the list that that Brockington, um, you know, describes in the documentary, uh, you know, is it's obviously uh, painful to hear. It was very painful for him. Um, and it's only a sliver. Um, you know, I think that in, in some ways uh, we can be attuned to um, to language that is uh, uh, intentionally hateful. I think there's also a, a way of thinking about, um, and, and I think we've seen this happen over time in terms of people uh, you know, there's been so many people who, have, who in, in uh, media culture who are like, oh, I just didn't know um, that uh, tranny was a derogatory word until recently, as if they're having their own kind of coming, uh, coming out story around uh, the kind of language that was so deeply ingrained in how they came to think about community um, that... Uh, um, uh, uh, that they they realize that the kind of um, ma- making use of those that that making use of that kind of language was actually hurtful to people, um, and so you know in in relation to what uh, what you're asking, um, what I what I want to just firmly underline is that yes, we have uh, an incredible amount of hurtful and hateful speech. Um, we also make use of phrases and terms every day that have anti-black, anti-trans, uh, anti-worker, uh, 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 sexist, um, um, histories, origins, connotations. Um, and so, you know, uh, language is an expression of uh, the kind of um, cultural scripts. Uh, they are the inheritances. Uh, they are a form of inheritance, uh, but language is also something that can be remade. Um, and, you know, I, I think that if this is this is kind of going to a slightly different point, but, you know, I think that this also in some ways has a bearing on the kind of performative um, exhaustion around the expansion of the acronym to describe, uh, you know, LGBTIQA. Uh, communities as if the kind of proliferation of language exhausts people. Um, But we might also think about that proliferation of language as another vector of uh, remaking what it means for people to try to um, live in the world in language when there is already so much language that that, um, 
makes the world feel unlivable. You describe how in a November 2014 photograph of Brockington, uh, he's dressed in all black. Brockington wears a shirt that bears a list of names conjoined by ampersands and finished with an ellipsis. Emmett and Amadou and Sean and Oscar and Trayvon and Jordan and Eric and Mike and Ezel. And a few months later, his own name occupied the elliptical space. Uh, an article published on Advocate.com on March 24, 2015, the day after Brockington's death, notes that Brockington's death was the sixth reported suicide of a trans youth in the United States that year in an epidemic that trans advocates say they see as uh, far more casualties than are actually noted by the media. How can criminalizing black and gender variant lives be seen as causing Brockington's death? How can that unliving, how could his perception that he is not as alive as others lead to Brockington killing himself? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that when we think about people who are um, committing suicide or killing themselves, um, in relation to not being able to imagine uh, a livable world um, is precisely, um, as you state in the question, uh, a matter of uh, thinking about, uh, of rethinking what life means um, when it seems that uh, the inevitability is premature death. Um, you know, I think when I was writing this book, I, you know, I was writing from rural New York, uh, for part of it. Uh, and I thought a lot about, uh, Blake who was living in, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina for some part and, um, came from a smaller town in North Carolina before then. And, um, when one sense of, uh, black and trans life is often marked by and remarked upon um, the premature death of uh, the communities that uh, that I come from, that Blake came from. Um, it, it produces a different kind of relationship to uh, what what it means to survive. Um, I'm always interested in etymology and, you know, survival is a word that, it, you know, according to this Latin root means to be above or beyond life. Um, it, it suggests to me then the kind of effort of living. Um, and I think, you know, for Blake, uh, he was an activist. Uh, he was uh, he he received a great amount of, of visibility uh, visibility that in fact was incredibly uh, uh, difficult to to um, encounter to, to, to face um, and you know the, the the kind of structures for his survival uh, you know I, and and this is not to diminish the communities I've met people who know Blake um, or, or who knew Blake. Uh, this is not to diminish its communities, but it is to say that, um, you know, there is a real uh, question about uh, thinking about Black and trans life um, in, in 
terms of uh, what would make that life not uh, not predictably, and this is, I guess, a kind of riff on our earlier conversation on statistics, not predictably um, about uh, a kind of uh, inevitable or uh, uh, exposure to premature death. You write that trans in each of its permutations finds expression and continuous circulation within blackness, and blackness is transected by embodied procedures that fall under the sign of gender. How is, because this is a really important part of your book, obviously, how is trans within blackness, and how does blackness fall under gender? Aren't they two completely different identities, one based on race and the other based on gender? (laughs) So, uh, you know, the title of the book, Black on Both Sides, is a play on uh, what trans as a uh, prefix is is supposed to um, imagine, right? So trans means to go across something, and part of the uh, the the book's title is to suggest that even if we get across, uh, let's say gender, that we're still consumed within the logic of uh, blackness and anti-blackness. Um, so you know, often we think about race and gender is having uh, different kind of cultural and scientific um, genealogies. And in some ways, you know, I use the language of transversal, so, you know, they're, they're not completely symmetrical. I'm not trying to suggest that they are exactly the same. But in fact, you know, the context of gender, uh, like, uh, let's say, uh, scientific understanding of gender took root in the height of the kind of racist pseudoscience. And so the kinds of ways that uh, we think about kind of sex as a biology, gender as a kind of category that complements the the kind of biological category of sex, were swirling around with a whole host of questions uh, in scientific discourse uh, that had to do with notions of race and species. I think we can also look uh, at, uh, you know, something that Horton Spillers says quite succinctly, that in the U.S. that's premised on a theft of body and the theft of land, we lose at least gender difference as the outcome. Um, And so to be dispossessed of one's body um, as a kind of uh, consequence of the transatlantic slave trade means that the kind of articulation of blackness is not only the kind of uh, ground from which we can imagine um, uh, uh, you know, blackness is not only the um, the the node uh, of absolute uh, otherness in a white supremacist paradigm, uh, but that blackness itself is also deeply imbued with questions of gender when gender was uh, a category of dispossession. Um, and so those are, some, those are just a couple of the ways that I'm trying to tease out these relationships between blackness and transness over time. That in fact, science doesn't get us out of thinking about these things as, as intertwined. And that certainly culturally, uh, we can't think about these things as not being intertwined. You know, much like people use the language of racial capitalism to, to, to denote the way that capitalism works to produce 
and also um, uh, what's the word agitate forms of uh, of white supremacist uh, uh, racial hierarchy and difference. Um, I also think about gender as needing to be um, uh, modified by the notion of race. So we think about racialized gender uh, as a kind of um, ideology that structures how gender is lived. And we can think about this in, you know, mundane ways as well, uh, that uh, the kind of notion of, of quote-unquote, idealized femininity is a uh, is premised upon uh, a, a kind of white conception of beauty. Um, that is a very, you know, um, uh, uh, that is a conversation that I think we can also uh, think on uh, along and within or within a prism of the various ways that um, gender expression, gender identity gets read through um, race and often racist uh, 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 visualizing logic. And you quote a gender theorist Susan Stryker, political scientist Paisley Curra, and sociologist Lisa Jean Moore writing about the narrow politics of gender identity. What is meant by the narrow politics of gender identity? How are gender politics narrow? Because... Uh, I had somebody tell me the other day that they didn't think that gender politics were narrow, that they're always expanding as places like Facebook now recognize 56 different gender identities. So how is uh, does it does a broad range of gender identities not in- necessarily overcome narrow gender identity politics? Well, I think two things there. I mean, when when I cite uh, Stryker, Stryker, Paisley and Curra. I am uh, thinking about, sorry, uh, Stryker, Moore, and uh, Paisley. I am um, I'm gesturing toward the idea that we can think about transness without without necessarily um, always attaching that to the notion of gender. Uh, and so that's an argument that um, folks in transgender studies. Uh, are, are articulating that the kind of methods, modes, questions, and insights of transgender studies is not so that we can better know trans people necessarily, that we can think about them, um, you know, that, that there is something that could be useful, for example, about a kind of trans analysis of the state, uh, think normalized by being faith, or a kind of trans analysis of um of, of capitalism, that, that there is a, a kind of analytic thrust uh, to, uh, that, is, that, that has a relationship, although not an exclusive one, to um, a trans ways of life. Um, I think there's another piece there, which is about a kind of, you know, as we, uh, you know, Facebook's 56 uh, gender designation, um, you know, that's, I, I, I've been quite curious. I, I hope that at some point I'll, I'll get a chance to, to know more about the story of how that took place on Facebook. I find it fascinating. Um, but it does not, uh, you know, I think, I think we're also in uh, a moment where people characterize, for example, forms of inclusion by saying, oh, this is an event for uh, women, cis and trans. 
and the very that very shorthand, that very um, quick way of of trying to note who is invited um, is also kind of uh, it 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 amplifies a, the kind of dichotomous thinking around gender um, that you know uh, I think some at least some people uh, it, who uh, live as trans or who are thinking about gender like trans and I'm going to put a space, trans space gender politics, so not necessarily uh, transgender liberation movements per se, but those folks who want to think trans inclusively um, often end up uh, um, uh, un- perhaps unwittingly or, 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 or not reaffirming dichotomous gender. Um, you know, there, there are many ways in which, um, you know, folks are finding um uh ways to express themselves in language and and it's also still quite clear um that the idea that gender is something that we possess um what rather than maybe it's a category of dispossession um uh is a, a kind of common sense of how uh people who are not gender variant understand their lives. But perhaps in thinking um, uh, about the violent ways that gender has been um, impressed upon uh, so many bodies, trans and non-trans, we can can move to a politic uh, or at least a a public political discourse um, that gives rise to the expansiveness of the ways uh, that that gender um, and transgender uh, um, inflect uh, the social world. You know, one of the things that I used to say uh, before the book came out is that it may be more useful to think of gender not as a category to be possessed, uh, but as a strategy for living, um, and that that might open up a way to think more expansively across uh, a a kind of new uh, dichotomy, right? Not just man and woman, but cis and trans as these kind of very fixed sites in which one is either or. Um, It's it's a question, you know, it's, it's it's a kind of profound question for me about what does it mean to, um, approach social problems, to approach uh, social identification um, in ways that refuse uh, a kind of binary way of, uh, of, of a binary mode of classification. We have been speaking with C. Riley Snorton, author of the award-winning book, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. Uh, Black on Both Sides won the Lambda Literary Award for Transgender Nonfiction, was named an American Library Association Stonewall Honor Book. Riley is Associate Professor of Africana Studies and Feminist Gender and Sexuality Studies at Cornell University and Visiting Associate Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Riley's previous book was 2014's Nobody is Supposed to Know, Black Sexuality on the Down Low. And you can find Riley on Twitter at C. Riley Snorton. That's R I L 
E-Y. One last question, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our, or our audience is going to hate your response. But I looked at my question from hell for you for this week, and I, I just didn't like it all that much. So I want to get back to a point that you made, that, you've, uh, that you make in your book, because I, I think this is incredibly important for people to understand your perspective, because we've only skimmed the surface of black on both sides of radical history of trans identity. How are sex and gender racial arrangements? Great. Uh, thank you for that, that question from hell. So, uh, you know, the first part of the book is deeply uh, thinking through uh, some uh, difficult, difficult archives. Um, the short answer to that is sex and gender are racial arrangements because they are premised on um, the idea of flesh, uh, flesh in, uh, in particularly in the medical sense, uh, what it means to have a body that can be operated upon um, was distinguished according to who was perceived to be um, uh, who, who was perceived to be able to be experimented upon. And so my first chapter looks at J. Marion's son, uh, lionized as the father of gynecology, the recent stories about his statue being taken down at Central Park, um, who uh, over the course of several years um, medically experimented without anesthesia on, uh, it's estimated up to 12 uh, captive uh, black women um, toward the cure for vesicle vaginal fistula. Um, one of the arguments that I make is that, you know, as, as he, his whole procedure is premised on uh, not thinking about uh, the kind of uh, uh, black women as being outside of the vestiges of womanhood, um, by which I mean that in a moment where gynecologists weren't even looking at their white female patients, he spends copious copious. He, he writes copious, copious detailed notes, invites all of his colleagues uh, frequently to watch him perform these uh, uh, medical experiments on captive Black women. So in, in one sense, um, there, and this is a distinction that I get from Spiller, uh, that there's a, that there is some, that, that what we know of as flesh is distinct from what it means to have a body that a flesh can be a kind of site of medical experimentation, that a body gets to be the kind of marker of personhood. And the, and the archive of J. Marion Sims um, uh, seems, bears out this distinction in which the very notion of what it means to have women, uh, 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 women's medicine um, is premised on uh, experimenting on a group of people who would be disparaged from the kind of... Uh, vestiges, particularly cultural, but also material vestiges of womanhood. Um, I also just want to just make a, a quick, uh, I, I guess, correction slash announcement, which is that I am now Chicago-based. I'm at the University of Chicago as a professor of English and gender and sexuality studies. Um, I hope that that gets to, to some of that, some of the, uh, the tenets of the question from hell. Um, even though, you know, there's a lot of different ways that I'm trying to, to pour that out in the book. And I guess the shorthand way of saying it is that uh, 
the the notion of 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 sex science has been deeply 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 uh shaped inflected by uh uh kind of theories of race and so they're it's contaminated by race um in such a way that even what we think of as a neat division of sex and gender um is also deeply contaminated by race in such a way uh, that we can't even think about that kind of clean break. What is sex, i.e., what is the science of the body? What is gender, i.e., what is the culture of the body? Uh, without thinking about all of uh, the ways that um, the question of race and species um, uh, kind of mixed that all up. Riley, this has been a fascinating conversation in your book. Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity is fantastic. You can find out more. You can follow Riley on Twitter at C. Riley Snorton. That's R-I-L-E-Y. And now that I know you're in Chicago, I'm going to be bugging you to uh, buy you a beer or something because I really appreciate this conversation. Your book is fantastic. And like I said before, we've only skimmed the surface of this book. If people want to really know exactly what's in this book, you got to read it. It really is uh, very enlightening. Again, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. Identity. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Oh, thanks so much, Chuck. And I uh, look forward to following up about that beer. All right. Thank you, Riley. Chuck spoke with C. Riley Snorton in July of this year. Finally, last one, Max Haven. Uh, Max Haven has had done a lot of our favorite interviews every year that we've had him on the show. And this one's a great one. It's from September of this year on art, money, and capitalism. Art and money have had a long and sordid relationship, and arguably art and capitalism need each other to survive. So what can we do to challenge the system in an era of art after money and money after art? Here to tell us, organizer and educator Max Haven is author of Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Max. It's great to be back. Max has been on our show a couple of times in the past. Uh, one time he was on to talk about, uh, let's see, undercommoning. Another time he was on to talk about uh, reactionary authoritarianism. That was back in 2016 and 2017. You can find all those interviews at our website, thisishell.com. And you can follow Max on Twitter at Max Haven. That's H-A-I-V-E-N. And go to his website at maxhaven.com. You write money and art as they exist under capitalism must be abolished along with that economic system. What is wrong with art under capitalism? What does capitalism do to art that makes art wrong? Well, I think there's two uh, aspects to that question or two answers that I give you. The first is that I think especially over the last 20 or 30 years of capitalism and it's what we call the financialized phase, where you know finance capital and speculative money has risen to prominence in the capitalist economy, art itself has become financialized. So now there are a lot of firms and a lot of companies and a lot of individuals who are very interested in using art as a speculative asset, something that you invest in to get a higher return later, with very little concern for its aesthetic value, for its contribution to culture and society. Um, so on the one hand, art, like everything else in our society, has been turned into sort of the plaything of the plutocrat. But I think in this book, I'm trying to say that there's a deeper problem here, too, which is that under capitalism, the fundamental sort of what we would talk about as a creative or imaginative impulse of our species 
has really been progressively reoriented towards the generation of profit and towards corporate power. So art, on the one hand, is like those expensive objects we see in big museums. Those have become financial assets, but at a much more profound level, even on the level of daily life for most of us who don't consider ourselves artists, uh, our artistic impulse and our artistic skills and talents and passions have also been commodified, financialized, and instrumentalized. So um, is that financialization of art new? Because I am certain that I'm going to get an email from somebody who says, this is no different than when the de' Medici's or the Borgias or the Catholic Church mm-hmm. were the biggest art patrons in the world. So how is the financialization of art anything new, anything different from what it was in the past? Hasn't it always reflected what the people who have the most money want? Yes, absolutely. As long as there's been a thing we call art, which is actually a very recent human invention as a, as a term. I mean, the creative impulse is, of course, been with us since uh, we evolved into what we now understand to be humans. But ever since there's been this distinct category that we call art, that usually we associate with sort of romantic men drinking themselves to death in Paris, that has always been the plaything of the ruling class. But what has changed is that the ruling class has changed. So, of course, in medieval and Renaissance Italy, as, as you mentioned, that ruling class was a very tight uh, uh, group of religious and economic and political elites who wanted to art to do certain things for them. Um, specifically, they wanted it to glorify their worldview. They wanted it to tell a story about how their, their rule over the rest of society was legitimate. And they wanted it to ornament their mansions and houses that they had bought with their sort of ill-begotten wealth. Well, that hasn't changed fundamentally. That is still what the ruling class today wants. But the ruling class is very different today than it was in Renaissance Italy. Today, the ruling class is globalized. They uh, make money not necessarily through sort of mercantilist mechanisms or through exploiting peasantry, although that is still part of the capitalist system. They increasingly make money through speculation and through extraction and through the exploitation of labor. Uh, And so this ruling class is much more global. It's much more cosmopolitan in its tastes and its desires. And what it wants from art is very different. They're not as interested in sort of conservative depictions of how wonderful the world is under their care. They're actually more interested in provocative art. They're interested in edgy art. They're interested in art that pushes boundaries, because in fact, that's what the ruling class today thinks they are doing. You know, the financiers of Wall Street or the city of London or Shanghai or Frankfurt, they believe that like artists, they're bringing their creativity into the world and manifesting their will as, you know, the sort of image of the romantic artist we have. And of course, the difference is that an artist, if they make some mistake, you get a kind of ugly canvas. When these capitalists make a mistake, you get global warming, nuclear war, and you know, reactionary authoritarian governments. Under neoliberalism, we have this celebration of the individual and this dismissal, if not derision, of anything that is a collective notion or a collective response to anything. How much mm-hmm. is the ruling class today... Uh, under neoliberalism, under financialization, under the state of capitalism that we are currently living in, how much is the ruling class today more individualized and not thinking in more of a collective nature and that because of neoliberalism and that leads to them making decisions that are different from their predecessors who were the economic elites of capitalism at their time? 
No, that's a very good question. Um, I think to a very large extent today's ruling class is uh, defined by their access to money rather than rather than as it was in the past, their family connections and their kind of class unity. Uh, and that leads to a number of deeply morbid systems within the capitalist system. One of them is that they don't often realize that um, one of the central contradictions of capitalism is that though in order to move forward, in order to accumulate wealth in the hands of capitalists, capitalists must compete with one another. Uh, That is a fundamental feature of the system. At various times, they have to cooperate. And those times are typically when there's an economic crisis. And for instance, as J.P. Morgan did, you know, almost 100 years ago now, literally called together the biggest financiers in New York City and insisted that they all make a collective sacrifice for the good of their class, or else there would be a massive economic crisis, as there was a little later in the Great Depression, as you know, in the Great Crash that led to the Great Depression. Uh, but that if they didn't make this sacrifice together for their common good, the system would crash and the masses would rise up. Um, and that's kind of a part of the defense mechanism of capitalism. But today's capitalists are both so globalized and so individualist in their understanding, they can't even necessarily figure out how to take that kind of class leadership. And for the rest of us, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because if they can't take leadership and they can't cooperate, it would make it easier for social movement uh, of the non-ruling class to challenge their power and make a more egalitarian, equal, and peaceful society. Unfortunately, in the absence of massive social movements that could take advantage of this opportunity, what happens is you get individual capitalists and factions of capitalism, both international factions and within nations, fighting against each other. And as you might imagine, they're not necessarily paying the price for that fight. So all of the trade wars that we're seeing, all of the international saber-rattling and contests between Chinese capitalism and American capitalism and European capitalism and Russian capitalism, these, you know, threaten to escalate into actual warfare uh, and into very serious consequences, economically speaking, for everyone on the planet. So uh, capitalists increasingly have this very individualist view, which prevents them from actually realizing that the system is ultimately suicidal. Wow, that's fascinating. So uh, as I was saying earlier, you know, you write how money and art, uh, as they exist under capitalism, must be abolished. And I asked, what is wrong with art under capitalism? So conversely, what negative impact can art have on money? Well, there's two ways of answering that question. One of them is the negative impact that is maybe... Uh, not a good thing. And the second is the type of negative impact that is a good thing. So not a good thing. I would say the negative impact of art on money is a little more um, poetic. And we have to go back to an earlier notion of art and the imagination from, again, the Renaissance or early modern capitalism, where terms like art and imagination were not these sort of uh, lauded and celebrated ideas that they are today they're actually seen as a form of deception. And this idea of art as a deception and and as dangerous to society goes back to Plato, uh, arguably before Plato. And it's the idea that really under capitalism, there's a little too much creativity in the capitalist economy in the sense that, you know, if you go down to Wall Street right now, uh, you're going to find rooms in Goldman Sachs and uh, Bank of America where people with PhDs in astrophysics are sitting around figuring out how to create new derivative uh, contracts, figuring out how to build high-frequency trading machines, 
basically trying to compete with other financiers to game the system as best they can. So there's a kind of artfulness within capitalism that is allowing this phenomenon we call financialization to run amok, in the sense that, you know, uh, now this speculative force, which is, you know, throwing money around the world and multiplying bets uh, upon bets upon bets, uh, is really skewing any way in which the prices of things, uh, which is to say the actual monetary value of something, is connected to its underlying value. So just for very, very briefly, I mean, you're in Chicago. So all around Chicago, there are warehouses full of raw materials, including foodstuffs and also things like aluminum, that are sitting there that will may never be used, but the, the deeds to those uh, resources are being traded multiple times on financial markets. So on the one hand, we can see that as a pathology of capitalism, but I prefer to see it as a way in which capitalism has mobilized the imagination, mobilized a certain kind of creativity, a certain artfulness, our kind of incredible human capacities to create things that we imagine beforehand, and put that towards the purposes of accumulating wealth for some. So that's the kind of bad side. The good side, I would say, about what uh, art has, how art can threaten or challenge capitalism is Fundamentally, art holds a space open for our imagination. It holds a space open that everywhere else in society has been foreclosed. There's not actually a lot of spaces left in our society to think about the system that we live in, to think about the deeper questions of society. The university, as we've spoken about in a previous uh, interview, has been deeply, deeply commodified and financialized already. Uh, We no longer have, except for, of course, your show and several others, uh, a kind of media that's willing to ask deep and profound questions and challenge power. There are very few spaces in our society to actually uh, bring our imaginations outside of the sort of commodified and financialized realms that they've been habituated into by people who are basically trying to exploit or extort or um, uh, extract value from us. And so art, even though it has, in fact, been highly commodified for its entire history and now financialized in profound ways, there's still something about the space that it has to hold open in our society that leaves a kind of room for the imagination and room for collective exercises of the imagination, especially when those artworks are experienced together and in public or are you know, used as workshops in order to harness and enliven the imagination of social movements. Is neoliberal neoliberalism then is, is is the final goal of neo neoliberalism, whether it's an intended goal a goal or an unintended consequence, to close all of those areas like art, where neoliberalism can be challenged? Is the idea to close those spaces of potential challenge to neoliberalism? In a way, although I would say it, I, I don't know if we could really say neoliberalism has a goal. It's, it's a phenomenon that's driven by the contradictions and competition of capitalism as it reaches a very high rate of accumulation and this sort of competition between capitalists who can't really help themselves uh, from you know, competing ruthlessly to outdo one another. Um, but I think I would offer just a little correction to that, which is I think it doesn't the, – the problem with neoliberalism and financialization, which is different than I think other earlier moments of capitalism, is that uh, ultimately it's not trying to close down the imagination. You know, you can imagine that, you know, back in the 19th century, 
capitalists had no interest in the imagination of workers. And if workers' imaginations became too grand and they thought they perhaps deserved to be able not to starve or that they deserved, for instance, to take over the means of production, that would be answered by brutal repressive force. Today, in this moment of capitalism, because it's so highly individualized and so highly based on individuals imagining themselves as competitive agents with one another and so deeply invested in consumerism, neoliberal financialization as a system, if we can say it wants something, what it wants is for all of us to reorient our imagination and creativity towards participation within the system. So it doesn't close down the imagination or creativity. It would be more accurate to say it puts it to work, and it encourages each of us to put it to work in the name of our own individual economic survival. What does this look like? Well, on the realm of work, it looks like this increasing encouragement that all of us should, throughout our entire lives, even since childhood, be cultivating a kind of curriculum vitae or a resume that includes hobbies, passions, skills, and that when it comes time to offer this at the workplace, we should arrive to basically be able to sell our labor power or our human capital, as it's been reframed by sort of neoliberal theologians, as, uh, as an asset to be rented by our boss. And the second way that that works is that just on the level of everyday life, I mean, some of us, like me, work in the sort of cultural field. I'm a teacher, so I am working with my imagination and with my mind. But anyone in the society, even if you're doing manual labor, has had to become vastly more creative and imaginative just in terms of how to make ends meet in an era when real wages adjusted for inflation are dropping and corporate profits are skyrocketing. So from your description earlier, it sounds like art is expanding the financial imagination under neoliberalism. Yet one of the criticisms we've heard from a lot of analysts who have appeared on our show is that neoliberalism stagnates the political imagination. So why does why under neoliberalism can art expand the financial imagination, but is unable to expand the political imagination? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I think um, I would draw here on uh, the late Mark Fisher's notion of capitalist realism, which is the the strange way in which under this moment of neoliberalism, after the so-called end of history, as announced by Francis Fukuyama in the early 90s, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's a sense of absolute sort of fatalism um, about capitalism. It's here to stay, and all you can do is really kind of tinker around the edges or compete to survive within it. Um, and I think that is a fundamental foreclosure of the political imagination, because it says, you know, this, is, this system is uh, unavoidable. Now, I would say that I actually think after the 2008 financial crisis, that um, end-of-history ideology has actually been challenged it's been challenged, of course, from the left by social movements who are saying that we need to essentially have some version of socialism, which has always been the obvious answer um, on some level, although there are many different types of socialism one could propose. But I think, unfortunately, what we've seen in the last two or three years, or what we've been made aware of, is that also that uh, consensus has been challenged from the right. And the right has uh, essentially propounded and is in the project of developing uh, neo-fascism as a dominant ideology. And that uh, is, is still a capitalist ideology, ultimately, but like all forms of fascism, it insists that the only way to save capitalism from its own uh, pathologies is for a strong, centralized, usually ethno-nationalist or uh, religious fundamentalist state 
to be kind of the supreme arbiter and the ultimate expression of force. So I think in this case, we have um, a, a real horrific foreclosure of the political imagination. And this is where I think art becomes, in a weird way, so important, because we need to remember our powers. You know, the success of both, the success of fascism is to insist that our powers only stem from our obedience to an authoritarian master. And the success of capitalism as an ideology is to success that our powers, our creative powers as individuals and as a society, can only be fully expressed in the competitive landscape of the market. Well, there are and there have been other alternatives. And in fact, even just the experience of daily life shows us that our most creative, imaginative, and pleasurable moments come from collective experiences. It's not to discount the importance of individuals who are truly incredibly talented and gifted and can offer us great cultural treasures, whether it's in music or visual arts or dance or performance or literature. But it is to say that for those things to become treasured, they become treasured collectively. And they only have resonance when they resonate with larger audiences who are there to witness and to take them in and to allow it to transform them. We are speaking with organizer and educator Max Haven. Uh, He has a new book out, Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. And I was just looking at my notes, Max, and uh, I have like 60 pre-written questions. (laughs) I've gotten through two so far because I keep having follow-ups like this one. So is neoliberal, does neoliberalism then, uh, this is something I kept thinking about when I was reading your book, does it make us all artists. And that is, I know the precarious life of even prior to financialization, but even more recently, like in the 1990s, I know the precarious life of artists. I know how difficult their life Mm -hmm. can be, how they're basically a one-person shop that is completely vertically integrated. They're their distribution person. They're their marketing person. They're the people who create the content. And they have to go out essentially begging, trying to find work for themselves so they can sell their art, so they can sell their brand. How much does financialization make us all those kind of free agent artists? I think to a very real extent. Um, And there's one way that I'd really want to insist on that and one way that I'd want to kind of challenge it. So I think almost 20 years ago now, the English cultural studies scholar Angela McRobbie uh, pointed out that, in her words, uh, artists had become the pioneers of the new economy, or were held up as the pioneers of the new economy, really against their will. Uh, And that, as you say, was precisely that uh, in a moment when governments sort of were moving away from central uh, sort of social democratic economic planning, uh, from the post-war period, or uh, not social democratic, let's say Keynesian economic planning. Um, and this was also uh, sort of accompanied by the deindustrialization of the global north, uh, and the movement of uh, the kind of exploitation of industrial labor to the global south. There was this rhetoric of creativity, creative economies, creative cities, the creative class. And this really held up the figure of the artist, this kind of romantic, no-strings-attached, freewheeling, uh, arbitrageur of the self as the icon that all workers were supposed to emulate. And there was this lionization of the figure of the artist as someone who navigates the field of capitalism without relying on like full-time permanent job, without relying on the paternalism of the nation state and the welfare state. 
Um, and to a certain extent, that's just grown and grown and grown. And it's been tied into the, the kind of structural and cultural changes of financialization, such that, you know, like all of these shows, like The Voice or like American Idol, these are shows about artists who invest a huge amount in secret, usually, in their cultural capacities and their cultural capital, in their skills and talents, and then sort of go on the auction block, for lack of a better word, and try and get these bosses, essentially, to uh, you know, laud them and skyrocket them into uh, fame and fortune. But like those shows, the artistic field, and almost other, every other field of the economy that we're seeing now is one where a, a large number of people compete for a very small number of opportunities, which allows some people to become kind of superstars and earn money and have economic stability and get glamour and fame and recognition, while the vast majority of people uh, suffer in obscurity and end up being sandwich artists, which is what you know, Subway Restaurants has the audacity to call their exploited employees. So on the one hand, I think that this idea of the artist as the, uh, economy, the, the pioneer of the new economy is absolutely true, and it's become more true recently. I think the one way that I would challenge it is to say that the vast majority of workers today never get any opportunity to express their creativity and imagination, and uh, any claims that they do are kind of bogus. Like, sandwich artist is another good example. You can call this person an artist. You can talk about how, you know... When, you're, when your awful boss calls you in for the job interview at Subway, they want you to tell them that you're passionate about making sandwiches, that you love the public, that you're, trying to, you're using this job to improve your human capital so you can go on and have a great career in a house and blah, 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 all the things you're supposed to want under capitalism. But the reality is they don't care. They want a human body with a minimal amount of cognitive function to stand there you know, assembling parts of a sandwich all day so that they can sell it for a profit and cultivate surplus value. So I, I, I want to insist that, yes, of course, this idea of the artist is still very dominant and very um, pr profound in the way that it's trying to restructure our imaginations to bring us into line with financialization and neoliberalism. But when we actually look at the reality of society, the vast majority of us are never going to get to express our creativity. We're never going to get rewarded for it. And the best we can say about most people's artistic activities under this system is that they help people stay alive and sane and retain some shred of humanity in very dehumanizing circumstances. As uh, Rebecca Solnit pointed out in her book, Hollow Cities, back in, what, 1999, I think it was, uh, that artists are the, you know, kind of bohemian pioneers who eventually end up gentrifying neighborhoods. And here we're talking about artists being the template for precarity and the type of job experience we now have under financialization. How much does the creative class cause the problems of financialization? How much is the creative class agents of financialization and neoliberalism, whether they want to admit it or whether they realize it or not? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, if we're going to talk about gentrification and, and the use of artists as sort of levers or vehicles to, uh, to open up what were formerly poor, usually racialized neighborhoods for sort of investment and, uh, you know, accumulation by dispossession, as David Harvey puts it, then I think we need to go back one step because here we have to introduce the, the notions of, of race and class and gender, which also are tied up in the notion of the artist. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the idea that we have of the quintessential artist looks a lot like 
the reality of who throughout capitalist history has been the quintessential capitalist. They are typically uh, white men, usually from Western Europe, but not exclusively, who are from elite backgrounds. That's who we associate typically with artists, although we have a certain notion since the um, Impressionists that they are sort of poor and um, and sort of, uh, uh, how do you say, like... Um, uh, Poor in a very romantic way, poor in a sort of glamorous way. But of course, throughout actual, the actual history of capitalism, many of the artists, and especially the art collectors and art world, have been from the elite. Uh, and specifically, uh, there, there have been the same people who've been running factories and managing colonies. And, you know, women have, until really the 20th century, been almost completely excluded from the realm of artists. So beginning from that position where the idea or ideal of the artist is really a member of the ruling class, uh, we can now draw a cleaner line to what, how that ideal is being mobilized in, um, in, in this moment of financialized capitalism. So here we see that artists have become what, what some scholars have called the shock troops of gentrification. Shock troops are, you know, those soldiers who are put out at the front of the army who are really meant to be slaughtered, uh, but who are sort of so fanatical and driven that they can break through the front line of the enemy ranks. So this militarized metaphor seems quite accurate for what happens to artists because these days, especially in the 20th century, many artists tend to live on the economic margins of society, even if they do come from positions of inherited wealth. Uh, They tend to be looking for large studio spaces in usually abandoned or uh, semi-abandoned zones or zones that are presumed to be abandoned by the kind of dominant uh, sociocultural paradigm. And so they end up moving into neighborhoods where rent is cheap uh, or where wealthier people do not desire to live. And following them come the kind of yuppies who are attracted to the artists, who are attracted to the kind of culture and businesses that artists either start or that they sort of catalyze within a neighborhood. And slowly rents rise, the police start showing up, uh, and the original inhabitants of the neighborhood and eventually the artists themselves get kind of pushed out of the, the uh, out of the way to make room essentially for people who are seeing the neighborhood as a source of investment as a, as a place to sink their money so that they can they can benefit from rising property prices in the future whether they live in that neighborhood or not this is just one of the ways in which art becomes a kind of um, a, a sort of tool for financialization and artists become a tool for financialization but there are others as well I mean for quite a long time, art has been a, a method for evading taxes or for laundering money. You know, investing in art and then donating art to a major museum or art gallery becomes a kind of tax-deductible donation for many extremely wealthy people. Uh, you can use art in various ways to move money around the world by moving art. You can sink your money into expensive works of art and store them in a free port, which is basically like a luxury warehouse attached to an airport with a special... Uh, special rules around customs and duties and special legal designations. You can kind of put your art collection in these vaults for for centuries and trade the rights to that art as a purely financial asset. There are companies now that specialize in pooling the assets of many investors and then hiring a bunch of art experts to basically buy a collection of art uh, purely as a kind of portfolio for its future returns. And many other mechanisms for mobilizing art as a as a what used to be called an alternative asset class, but I think one that's becoming more and more central to the thinking and operations of many financiers and even financial institutions like banks. 
Because you write about, uh, you write in the last 15 years or so, astronomical records have been set, then broken for the hammer price of works by still living artists at the world's uh, duopoly fine art auction houses, Sotheby's and Christie's. But this represents only a fraction of all the works sold in the notoriously murky, cronyistic, and one might even say deeply corrupt market for art. Can the art industry, can the art market, corrupt finance? In a certain extent, although I think finance is fundamentally corrupt, so it can't really be more corrupted. Uh, you know, this is, a, this is an industry that claims to, um, I mean, within the claims of neoliberals, the purpose of the financial services industry is to take deposits of people who have accumulated a lot of money and distribute it throughout the capitalist economy so that other enterprises can succeed. Uh, according to sort of neoliberal theology, what, what markets do is they properly allocate and assign the prices to assets by creating markets of buyers and sellers. So I won't go into what that means, except to say that it, within neoliberalism, there's a, there's a sort of a notion that ultimately the financial services industry is, is a good thing and is, a, is a, a, a kind of pure organ of capitalism, the capitalist body. But I think if we look historically, as we've spoken about in previous interviews, we can see that the financial services industry has always existed to facilitate, to normalize, and in many ways to hide or disguise uh, horrific forms of exploitation and uh, extraction of resources from people on the earth, starting with slavery and colonialism, for which the kind of signature institutions of finance uh, were created. So... I want to say on one hand that there is a way that this moment of financialization of the last 30 years has been really, you know, in a way changed by uh, the kind of flights of the imagination and forms of kind of noxious creativity that financiers have been able to get away with in a moment when they're no longer being regulated by the state in any way a sufficient manner, and also in a way where social movements have been at a, a low point in, their, in the tide, and where essentially capitalists have no reason to fear uh, that inequality will lead to their unseating. Uh, but I think, ultimately, I wouldn't call that art and creativity corrupting finance. I would just call that a changing relationship between the two. The two have always been related, and we shouldn't sort of mourn the passing of this notion of sort of autonomous, free, radical art that we think existed in the past and now has been corrupted. Likewise, we shouldn't, we shouldn't mourn the passing of a kind of good and pure financial industry that has been corrupted by kind of the evil imaginations and machinations of sort of greedy individuals. Both art and money have always been embroiled within each other. They've been encrypted within each other, to use the terminology I use in the book. Uh, and the question for me is not how can art as something that stands outside of finance and outside of capitalism comment on capitalism and finance. The question instead for me is how can art as something that has always been embroiled within finance and within capitalism, but that form of embroilment is changing, how can it comment on and reveal and challenge financialization and capitalism from within? So it's not an argument that art is somehow this kind of pure, beautiful thing that is, you know, comes out of the romantic imagination, sort of spark from God. It's really saying this thing has always emerged within and evolved out of capitalism. And so maybe it has something to teach us about the system that has given birth to it. So, but we always want to have this romantic notion that 
money and art are kind of anathema to one another. So why do we embrace that idea of that romantic idea of art and money being separate from one another, if in reality we can easily see that they have always gone hand in hand? Why do we have this romantic notion, or why do we even want to have that romantic notion? Well, I think I'd say there's maybe three reasons I'd mention, and there are more. One of them is that that romantic notion of the artist is precisely what guarantees art its financial value. That is what capitalists want to buy. They want to buy, they don't want to buy, you know, study in blue number 36. They want to buy a Gerhard Richter. They want to buy a Andy Warhol. They want to buy a, a Damien Hirst. They refer to these um, pieces, these, these commodities that they're speculating on by the name of the artist, because the name of the artist uh, as this kind of romantic figure guarantees the value of the work. Um, it's not just a canvas. It is something associated with the signature of the artist. It's a very strange form of magic. The second thing I would say is I think this romantic idea of the artist uh, still functions in part because our society has become so individualized. So in previous centuries, in previous decades, where society has not been so completely uh, atomized by neoliberalism, the figure of the artist has been seen as a distrustful figure, as a radical figure, as a provocative figure, or as a figure of moral degeneracy. In a moment of hyper-individualism, we are all encouraged to think of ourselves as if we could, in a weird way, be artists, even if we don't have any artistic talent or don't believe we have any artistic talent, and even if we are working in, you know, the, as a sandwich artist. There's this sense that the artist uh, holds the place for a kind of valorized or glamorized individual actor in our society that we're all supposed to want to be or to become, someone who's free, someone whose imagination gets to play, someone who's romantic and passionate, all of the things that we're told we're supposed to want to be in a highly individualized society. And the final thing I'll say about it is we fetishize the artist and the idea of art as we've understood it precisely so that we don't have to witness or own the incredible damage that has been done to us as social, collective, and creative beings. What capitalism has done over the last 30 years to the soul, for lack of a better term, and I'll use that term in the way that Franco before Berardi uses it, as you know, not this kind of thing that's given by God, not this metaphysical instance, but this sort of passionate dimension of our material existence, that has been incredibly damaged by this system. It's been damaged by decades of exploitation, decades of individualism, decades of being replaced with this kind of competitive drive. To the extent that we can still believe in the myths of art and the artist, we can look away from the rot that is not only occurring within our society as a whole, but within each of us, which is precisely that when art, when the thing we call art and when creativity and the imagination function as perhaps would be a more healthy way in a society where everyone had everything they needed to thrive and to contribute, which is to say a society that was based on perhaps socialist or anarchist principles, where everyone can thrive and contribute as they should, then, and only then, I think, do creativity and the imagination get to live their full life. Under the system that we have now, where our, our cooperative and our uh, commoning impulses are subordinated and transformed into competition, distrust, fear, and scarcity, these things are fractured, fragments and fractured versions of what they could be. 
And that is a very difficult thing for any of us to look at, both as a society and as an individual. And so instead of looking at that, and as we should, getting very angry about what's been done to us, and then working together to transform that situation, instead, we sort of look towards art and the artist as this fetishized realm, where at least we know that this person is getting to live this wonderful life of glamour and recognition and creativity and passion and, and pleasure. And as long as they exist out there, the rest of us can, you know, can make do. So the starving artist legitimizes the one who's making $100,000 a painting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Gregory Shalette uh, is a great, great commentator on, on this. Uh, and he talks about dark matter. He describes this as dark matter. So, you know, in the, in the night sky, uh, when we look up at space, there's stars, and the stars are indeed brilliant, and they're, you know, burning nuclear reactors that, you know, have incredible gravity and weight, and they're beautiful. And that's the same in the art world. There are these stars, and many of them are extremely talented. Um, but what is in between? And if you look at the whole density of space, of course, the stars make up less than a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of 1%. There's a huge amount of dark matter out there, which, you know, is this, what, what Cholette borrows from the sort of astrophysics, is this missing mass out there. And that is all of the people who are struggling, those people who are hobbyists, who are creators, who are fans who are making art in the hopes of being recognized but are never going to be recognized, who are people who are throwing their artistic and creative and imaginative passions into things that they are not actually rewarded by. For instance, people who are, you know, basically like go to work every day and come up with new ideas for their boss so their boss can make more money, uh, but who are never going to have, you know, have that work recognized. So there's this massive amount of creative and imaginative labor going on um, in our society that doesn't get called art, that doesn't get included in the art economy. And it's only on the basis of that huge pyramid of uh, energies that at the, the, the stone at the very top of the pyramid, which are those kind of art stars, to mix a metaphor here, uh, really gets to shine so brightly. And then their work, of course, becomes uh, the asset to be managed, leveraged, and speculated upon by the proverbial 1%. And then the rest of us starve doing radio shows like this. Uh, just a couple more questions for you, Max. Uh, you write, we need to pay close attention to the way the entire field of contemporary art is embroiled in this game. Not only the auction houses, art dealers, and mega museums, but also the whole global art production chain. Independent galleries, art schools, art writers and critics, even artists themselves. Financialized money trickles down unevenly and unfairly and influences all art world spaces in some way, even spaces that are avowedly independent and allegedly radical. So, is the art industry then an unspoken welfare system that rewards white rich people institutionally and not only publicly but privately as well? Is art another institution of white privilege? I mean, certainly... Uh, that is the material reality of it for a large part. I mean, if you look at the vast majority of art stars, those people, that's the sort of proverbial 1% of the art world. Uh, and pretty much if you do a survey, and, and a great group from uh, New York has done this survey called uh, BFA, MFA, PhD. Uh, they've actually done a survey of artists in New York. There's other groups around the world that have done this sort of artist inquiry as well. You do find that the ability to thrive and succeed as an artist is highly uh, correlated to your level of socioeconomic and uh, cultural privilege. Um, and 
I think that in of itself, like, I mean, one of the struggles about writing a book about art and the art market is, as you can probably already tell, I don't particularly care what happens to the art market, and I'm not super sympathetic to artists. I'm more interested in what this can tell us about capitalism as a whole. And I think for artists who uh, are concerned about art and the art market, they should be concerned with joining other others and trying to abolish that system. But in the interest of talking about... Um, and what art can teach us, I think this question about artists and their, their relative privilege is very important because what it shows us is that art, the art market would like to imagine itself as a pure meritocracy, like the rest of capitalism. It has to kind of build this myth that it rewards talent, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, blindly, that an art collector, an art gallerist, an art system, they know great work when they see it, and they're going to reward it. Um, and but what you in fact see is that the people who can sur survive and thrive within the art market and the art world are often people who come from very privileged backgrounds, and that privilege tends to uh, correlate highly to access to whiteness, to being a man, to coming from uh, a, a sort of upper class background, and that means that what gets still, you know, to this day, what gets taken to be these signature works of cultural contribution to our society and culture is disproportionately uh, the work of, you know, sort of white, wealthy men. And that, in turn, reaffirms a kind of mythology of white supremacy and patriarchal uh, notions of creativity, imagination, and capacity that are, of course, still normalized within the rest of the economy. So there's a kind of vicious circle between the art world and other spheres of our society in terms of reproducing these very pernicious mythologies. One um, last... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. That's... Uh, one last question for you then, Max. Uh, we've been speaking with organizer and educator Max Haven, author of Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. Find out more about Max at maxhaven.com. That's H-A-I-V-E-N.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at Max Haven. Again, you can go to thisishell.com, listen to our interviews and our talks with Max from the past in 2016 and 2017, 2016 uh, when we talked with him about the undercommoning, and 2017 when we discussed reactionary authoritarianism. You can find both those interviews at thisishell.com. Max is assistant professor and Canada research chair in culture, media, and social justice at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay and director of the Reimagining Value Action Lab He's the co-director of the Re Radical Imagination project, project, which you can find out more about at radicalimagination.org. One last question for you, and as always, it's our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that money and art, in fact, hold one another up, so to speak, to mutually reinforce one another as institutions of capitalism amidst that system's crises and contradictions. Can capitalism exist without art? <laughs> that is a good question. Um, no, it can't, in the sense that uh, capitalism needs to, and increasingly needs to, co-opt, constrain, and harness all human capacities, um, especially as it, as it sort of cycles of accumulation uh, manifest in what we now call neoliberalism and financialization. Uh, it needs to claim more and more of the energies that we, as humans, are uh, are predisposed to expressing. And what we call art 
uh, is the foreclosure or the container in which we put those passions and energies that we associate with the terms creativity and imagination. So art is needed because it's a box within capitalism where we dump a bunch of stuff that we don't want. Well, we do want it, but capitalists don't want it infecting the rest of the economy. If we actually got to express our creativity and imagination in terms of how we organize society, that's a form of socialism or anarchism. That's not capitalism. In capitalism, only a few people ever get to do that. Uh, So essentially, capitalism does need art. Previous moments of capitalism have needed art in different ways. They've needed art to help reproduce the capitalist class, to give you know, capitalists a reason to go to the opera and hobnob with one another, to give capitalists a, a art schools to send their children to, to give capitalists assets that they can buy and admire, and in admiring the artwork that they bought, admire themselves in a kind of narcissistic fashion for their wisdom and benevolence and cultural largesse. So at various moments in capitalism, capitalism has always needed art. That said, it doesn't need art as much as it needs a lot of other things, like, for instance, money or like labor. Um, if we, if all artists went on strike, and there have been efforts to do this, it would not immediately bring uh, the collapse of the capitalist system. What would be much more effective, however, is if artists said, uh, went on strike as part of, let's say, a global creativity and imaginative strike, which is to say everyone who labors would strike, a general strike of you know, a whole population, to say that we will no longer stand for our creativity, imagination, passion, and pleasure to be constrained and exploited by the system. And that's the point where I think art has some leverage. It's not so much about it as this distinct field where you go and you see this nice object in a gallery. It has to do with the place that it holds in our imagination for the things that we truly want to animate our society, but which are today denied to so many of us and denied to the kind of structure of the system as a whole. Max, it has been a pleasure talking to you again. Enjoy the rest of your weekend on the shores of Lake Gichigumi. I really appreciate you being back on our show, and you know I'll be bugging you again to have you return once once more to This Is Hell. It's always a pleasure. That was Chuck talking to Max Haven in September of 2018. Hi, producer Alex. You just listened to a four-and-a-half-hour show of my favorite interviews from This Is Hell in 2018. Uh, thanks for listening to my favorite interviews of 2018. Uh, What were your favorite interviews of 2018? Let me know. I'm going to put together a listener picks episode at the end of the year uh, or earlier if Chuck is sick again, I guess. Hopefully not. Uh, I'm sure he's fine. Who knows, though? Death comes for us all. Memento Mori. I probably shouldn't end on a down note. Uh, Okay. If you and me and Chuck are still alive next Saturday, one week from now, let's uh, meet up and do a live show. Okay. See you on the radio. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.